This is Mark Ronson with his incredible new album, Late Night Feelings. Featuring the hit singles, Late Night Feelings and Nothing Breaks Like a Heart. Mark Ronson, Late Night Feelings, out Friday. Hello everyone and welcome to the Slash Filmcast. I'm David Chen and with me are... Devendra Hardwire. And Jeff Kanata. Welcome to the show everyone. What we do here on the Slash Filmcast every week is we talk about uh, the latest movies that we've been watching and review one film in depth. This week we'll be reviewing Glass after talking about some of what we've been watching. Uh, you can find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. You can also email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. So before we get into what we've been watching and then move on into our review of Glass, oh, and I should also mention that we're going to do an After Dark today as well. Uh, we're going to be discussing some fire Festival documentaries. You know, in the history of mankind, there have been numerous twin movies, right? Ants and A Bug's Life. Uh, Armageddon. Dante's Invert, Inferno and Volcano. Uh, uh, yeah, Dante's Peak and, uh, oh, Dante's and Volcano. Peak, yeah. uh, Armageddon Deep Impact. Uh, so now two documentaries about the fire festival dropping in one week should be pretty interesting uh maybe maybe not exactly the same as two separate i think it is the same scale uh (laughs) same budget you know same uh cultural impact nothing could beat that year when we got deep impact and armageddon Uh, there was a lot going on yeah indeed indeed uh so something could beat that and it's two fire festival documentaries (laughs) jeff canada and i have seen both documentaries and davindra has seen most of them uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about what the heck that means. Uh, but before we get to that, couple exactly what that means. Come on, a couple on. of announcements. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to take a moment and thank uh, everyone who sent us nice emails, nice tweets about the 500th episode that we did last week. It was a massive amounts of work to get that episode together. Uh, everyone worked really hard and uh many people sent in voicemails uh the people on the show spent a lot of time picking out the movies and and uh thinking through things and of course our uh, producer Beatty also put a lot of work in as well so just wanted to thank you all for all all of your uh work that you guys contributed and uh for everyone's kind words about it i felt like it was a pretty solid summation of the last 10 years of work uh, yeah, and we've gotten so many, as you mentioned, wonderful responses. I, I feel like it's been this week and a half long uh, experience. There's been tweets every single day since the episode dropped of, of people saying nice things and congratulating the show and, and all of us. Uh, it's been it's been lovely having it persist. You know, people still just downloading the episode and enjoying it. You know, in their own time, and uh, you, you feel like you put that out there, and, and people are like, cool. But it's it's lasted a, a whole week, and that's been so fun. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a three hour long episode, which I think like some podcasts do three hours every week. Uh, that's yeah. that's a little too much for us, but uh, it was a lot of. We fun. We used to do near like three hours, and then uh, then we cut back because we got sane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, thanks to everyone for listening to the episode, and if you haven't yet, check out last week's episode. It is. Uh, to my mind, a, a pretty good summation of the podcast until this point in its life. 
let's see. What else did I want to mention up at the top of the show? So a couple weeks ago, we started talking about uh, the AMC popcorn guy. And <laughs> if you are an AMC theater goer in the United States, there is a pre-roll that AMC plays at the beginning uh, of every film where a bunch of racially diverse people uh, start to get settled in to, to watch a movie at an AMC. And uh, one of the people is this white dude who is eating popcorn. And then he seems to see something on the screen and gets startled. And then he throws the popcorn into the air. Uh, well, I think, the, I think the beauty yes. of it is that, is he startled? Is he excited? Is is has he seen something that is wonderful or did terrifying? he just see the end of Split and was like, "Whoa!" <laughs> is it is it is it horrific? Is it magical and heartwarming? Right. It really it's it's a it's a canvas upon which we can layer our own impressions of what he's seeing. It, it contains multitudes, really, but whatever moment. it is, it causes him to throw his popcorn cartoonishly around him. That's right. That's right. And somebody, uh, a, a listener. Uh, who shall? I'm, I'm not going to use any names at all in this next segment here, but a listener actually reached out and said, "Hey, I know the person who I, I know a person who may know a person in that ad, right?" He says, "I know Popcorn Guy." Yes, yes, uh, and I emailed Popcorn Guy, right? Like I, I, I was connected to Popcorn Guy. Emailed Popcorn Guy. I wanted to interview him to discuss the fact that the segment of the pre-roll where he throws the popcorn into the air has now been excised from the AMC pre-roll. And, and, and Dave, we just got through saying that we don't do three-hour podcasts anymore, but if we had gotten <laughs> Popcorn Guy, I don't think three hours would have been enough. I agree. <laughs> I, I got so excited. I actually posted the email on Twitter saying like, because Popcorn Guy responded. He said, hey, I'd love to talk on the podcast. And so I was super psyched to, to bring you this interview and then uh, Popcorn Guy pulled out, unfortunately. He, he said he didn't want to do it anymore after, after multiple attempts. Popcorn Guy uh, out. Popcorn Guy out, which is, uh, which is a real shame. However, however. You know what? You know what the thing is? Maybe we came on too strong. Maybe we, we shocked him, jarred him. Maybe he, <laughs> he was shaken. <laughs> whatever he was holding in his hands, it just like flew up in the air. Yeah, maybe maybe whatever he was holding in his hands flew up. Yeah, that's yeah. right. You have, to approach his child. Him. you have to approach him gently from whatever angle, even front, <laughs> even directly in front of him. He can be easily. No, we don't. I don't want to make fun of him because he was clearly directed. Uh, and I think that had we gotten the opportunity to yeah. talk to him, I, we would have been respectful and uh, – I, I don't, you know, we don't. But now that he's no longer appearing, you know, f that guy. <laughs> yeah, I'll just um, close her up. No, I'm, yeah. I'm just, you know, Jeff is right. We would, we would have been very respectful, and I, I would have wanted to know, like, uh, what was the setting under? Like, I'm kind of interested in, like, what, what is the situation under which those things are made, right? Like, yeah, uh, and, because you, you show up for a day, and then your uh, performance, quote unquote, gets seen by hundreds of millions of people, right? That like yeah. over over the course of many years, right? Uh, right. Or tens of millions of people, at least. So it's a, it's a fascinating situation. It's just an interesting situation. Anyway, so uh, Popcorn Guy pulled out, and so we're no longer, like, at this moment. He, he has an open door if he wants to come talk to us. Uh, but s somebody from a, let's just say, major Hollywood publication saw me tweeting about this whole situation and was intrigued enough that this person reached out to AMC 
to get an answer about why the segment has been excised from the pre-rolls. Are they swooping on our scoop? Yeah, they're swooping on they're scooping us. They're scooping us. Oh, no. uh, but you know what, Jeff? It's okay. I'm, I'm cool with it because as long as the information about the AMC pre-roll gets added to the corpus of human knowledge. That's, that, we're always worried most about the corpus. The, it's really the corpus that we care most yeah. about. Yeah. You know, the Slash Filmcast became an AMC podcast so quickly, I didn't even notice. <laughs> Indeed. Okay. Uh, so I just wanted to, to let you all know, like, in the next few weeks, I'm hoping we will get a resolution to what the heck is going on with that AMC pre-roll and uh, hopefully, like, get, you know, an official story yeah. from, again, a major uh, Hollywood publication. So the people want to know. We got, we, got our, we got our finger on the corpus. <laughs> Okay, sounds vaguely dirty, Jeff. All right, uh, well, that's enough for, for the pre-show. Uh, let's get to what we've been watching. Jeff Kanata, you've been watching a few things recently, right? I have. It is screener season here in Los Angeles, and as a member of the Screen Actors Union, I, uh, I get my fair share. And so it's been fun uh, catching up on some of the movies that I didn't, didn't squeeze in before the end of calendar year 2018. Um, several of them I had on my list. If you remember, faithful listeners will remember, uh, our top 10 of the year episode. There was a, a big long list of movies that I didn't manage to see before making that list. And high on that list of movies I did not see was one called, can you ever forgive me? Which I know had made uh, several people's top 10 list of the year and, um, seemed very intriguing to me. A movie starring Melissa McCarthy uh, but not a comedy, a, a uh, dramatic turn for her. And I was curious to see. Yeah, I, I like her. I find her very charming and fun. And I wanted to see this movie very much. I didn't know much about it as I avoid trailers. And and I also didn't know that it's a true story at all. I didn't know that until the end of the movie when it's like, this was a true story. And I was like, oh, I wish I had known that at the beginning because uh, it would have, I think, would have landed on me differently. But um, – I didn't care for this movie. I didn't. I did not. Did not like it. Have you guys seen? Can you ever forgive me? Yeah, I quite enjoyed no. it, Jeff. I found it pretty lifeless and uh, dull. It is a the subject matter. I I think is really interesting, and uh, they just sucked all of the interesting out of it. <laughs> I think it is. It, it's uh It's kind of plodding and morose, and uh, I found it to be really uninteresting and. Um, I didn't get much out of it, to be quite honest with you. Mm. And I was I was pretty disappointed by it. That is a shame. I thought I thought it was a delightful yarn, and uh, it has a what, what, in my opinion, was one of the great performances of 2018 with uh, Richard E. Grant. Uh, I thought he was a delight. He is great. He is great, and I think Melissa McCarthy is is uh, doing some great work in it as well. I just feel like the movie itself never really uh, goes anywhere. It it uh, it's. I don't know. It's about a bunch, a couple of people that that uh, I just I didn't really want to. There's a there's a moment early on, well maybe midway, where we sort of go inside uh, Lee Israel, who's the Melissa McCarthy character's apartment, and you <laughs> realize that it's quite dirty. And at that moment, I was like, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out. I don't want to be around these people anymore. <laughs> uh, but, uh, you know, I think it's a fine movie. <clears throat> they just didn't do anything for me. Jeff, I am very surprised by your reaction because I actually thought you would uh, enjoy Can You Ever Forgive Me? I thought I would, too. <laughs> I mean, I think I think because it celebrate. it's like in some ways a celebration of uh, the written word. 
right? Like it, it's in some ways like I think a celebration. It wants of, to be. Yep. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It, no, no, no. Yeah, it it, it, cel- it celebrates like uh, the written word and also kind of what it, like like the idea that you could be so familiar with someone's style that you could uh, produce a reasonable facsimile of it, right? And mm-hmm. and using that as the basis of a catch me if you can style caper, uh, I, I just thought was was a delight. So I'm sorry that you didn't I, enjoy it. I wish it had leaned into that a little more. I felt like. It only did lip service to that notion and it it we kind of gloss over. She gets into doing what she does in the movie and and writing and the writing itself, I think, really takes a backseat to the sort of interpersonal dynamic that she has with every other human in the movie. And none of that felt interesting to me. And I I just was never on board. I really wanted to be. But um I just found the I found it uninteresting and kind of lifeless and dull. So well, yeah. sorry to hear. I I quite enjoyed it. And again, Richard E. Grant uh, in the movie is worth watching alone, in my opinion. Like that that performance alone. Obviously, Melissa McCarthy also does a pretty uh, interesting transformation as well. Um, so the movies. Can you ever forgive me? Jeff didn't like it, but I was a fan. What else have you been mm. watching, Jeff? I also. Uh, my mom was in town this week. My wife was out of town, and so my mom came in to help out with childcare. Uh, so we were popping in, you know, my screeners, and one that she requested, and I, I really had no desire to see, although I didn't know anything about it. But I hadn't heard anything about it. Nobody was talking about it. Uh, it was a movie called The Wife, and I knew that Glenn Close was in it. Big fan of Glenn Close, uh, and so we popped it in because my mom wanted to see it, and I loved it. I loved The Wife. Uh, it is, it, it, it's the kind of movie that I really am a, a, a ringer for, which is it could be a play. <laughs> it's right. really very much, uh, of just a few locations, a lot of talking, um, just beautiful, incredible performances. It, it, it's about uh, the life of these sort of older people. Um, one of whom is getting, uh, the, um, the Nobel prize in literature, and so the entire movie is about receiving the Nobel Prize, which is a topic I've never seen dramatized before. I just found that whole process fascinating because it's something I've heard about many times, but I've never seen anyone dramatize that sequence of events. And I just thought that was pretty rad. Uh, and then it also includes flashbacks to earlier in their life, and, it's, and it kind of fleshes out this relationship between um, these two sort of older people later in their life and that you you get a, a really interesting vision into their marriage and uh, their working relationship. It's I, I found it fascinating, beautiful. It made me think it was uh, I, I just I loved it. I thought the wife was fantastic. All right. Well, Glenn Close had one of the most memorable reactions at the Golden Globes this year to winning her Golden Globe for the wife. Did you guys see it? Uh, I did she not. kind of she kind of freaked out uh publicly oh, yeah, because yeah. she had she had no sense that she was going to win, right? Like she just didn't even conceive I, I think because she was not the favorite from the like uh literally, right? She was not part of the film the favorite. Um but she <laughs> yeah. also I thought she, the favorite was the favorite. <laughs> right, yeah. She she didn't have odds to win and then uh, kind of clinched it. So uh I've heard great things about her performance and uh, Jeff, you you agree that she's awesome in it? She's awesome in it. Jonathan Price is also awesome in it. It's really a, a very much a two-hander. Uh, and their dynamic is so fascinating. You never see a relationship this nuanced. And and there's a sort of a 
a hook that comes in kind of late in the game that is a little gimmicky and interesting, but it doesn't ruin or it doesn't even, I think, um, bastardize or influence what is really just this beautiful relationship between two people that is full of contradictions. It's, it's, a a relationship of love and of, of lifelong devotion, but also a relationship that's had hardships and is full of anger and resentment and all of the things that, uh, you know, a 40, 50 year marriage is going to have. <clears throat> and I just thought th- them dramatizing that and, and putting that fully fleshed out kind of dynamic on screen was so extraordinary. And her performance, speaking of Glenn Close's performance, her performance, I think the reason it is so amazing, I mean, you have this actress, Glenn Close, who is, you know, she's famous for Fatal Attraction. And, um, oh, what was the the one just recently, the TV show she did uh, where she was the, the high-powered damages. You know, these extraordinarily powerful, wicked uh uh, vicious women, you know, in, in certain ways or, or, uh, just smart, whip smart and, and outspoken. And, you know, she's, she is Glenn Close is very much this force on screen and has played roles like that many, many times here. She is constantly describing herself as demure and not wanting the spotlight and, uh, wanting to stay in the background. And she steps into those shoes so beautifully. It is an extraordinary take from her on being soft-spoken and understated and uh, just very different than I've ever seen her before. And I think that may be why she's getting so much attention for it. It's very much a different kind of role for her, but one she pulls off just beautifully. Well, that's great to hear. Uh, I hope to check it out at some point. The movie's The Wife... And how, how did you see? You saw it on screener, right? You saw it on a screener. Yeah, I saw it on a screener, but I think it's still in theaters. Yeah, I think it's an unlimited release right now. So yeah. um, that's the wife. Anything else to be watching, Jeff? Well, I also uh, ended up <laughs> by accident watching a movie on Hulu. I think it's a Hulu original, a documentary about the Dana Carvey show, the, the short lived Dana Carvey show from the early mid 90s um, that Hulu put together. And I was, we were watching something on Hulu. I don't even remember what it was. And my wife fell asleep on the, on the couch and I like didn't want to get up and disturb her cause she was sort of resting on me. And I, so I was just like, oh, I'll, I'll just put this on. I'll, it'll be a couple minutes. And I ended up watching the hour and a half without leaving the couch. Cause it was instantly fascinating mm. and extremely watchable and fun chiefly because it features extensive interviews with. Stephen Colbert and Steve Carell, who were their first job, their first big show business job was as cast member writers on the Dana Carvey show, uh, along with a host of other huge comedic names, uh, Louis C.K. and Robert Smigel. uh, And the list goes on and on and on. It was like a who's who of people that were going to turn into household names. And uh, Dana Carvey, who was the hottest thing in comedy at the time, he had just left the Saturday, uh, left Saturday Night Live and really could do anything he wanted. And here he was going to do this primetime comedy show, uh, uh, primetime uh, variety show, sketch comedy show, which nobody really w- made work before. But the networks put all this hype on it. It was going to be this big thing. 
And it was a massive failure right out the gate. And the documentary just chronicles that, goes step by step and shows all this footage, shows a bunch of footage that never been seen before, behind the scenes stuff and episodes that got shuttered because the show didn't do well. It's fascinating. It's funny. The two Steves are incredible. There is a sketch from the Dana Carvey show that I had I had seen the show back in the day because I was a big Saturday Night Live fan in high school. I was a big Dana Carvey fan and I was eagerly anticipating this. I remember watching it, but I had not thought about this sketch. It's one of the best sketches of all time, in my opinion. And it's called it's called Waiters read a menu wait no yeah waiters read a waiters who are nauseated by food read you a menu and it's just it's like first (laughs) oh yeah 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 (laughs) yeah it's first person perspective so you like you are the camera so they're talking right to you and it's Mm. kind of looking up like you're sitting at a table and it's stephen colbert and steve carell and (laughs) stephen colbert starts reading a menu and both of them are fighting the urge to throw up throughout the whole time. So he's like, it's a really high concept skit. It is yeah. so funny. Cause they're so good. So he's like, well, you start with a, a chicken, a chicken, a chicken, um, cordon blue. And then they swap. You're like, cause the one guy can't handle it. So the guy comes in and, and he's like, and then, uh, we'll have a nice, uh, tomato bisque. Oh, oh God. You know, it's, it is so <laughs> funny watching them try not to throw up anyway uh so you get to see that sketch in it and you realize just some of the genius that was in the show that really was ahead of its time i think and some just insane stuff that got them kicked off television uh so anyway this it's well worth watching it's called too funny to fail and it's on hulu uh yeah sounds interesting you know uh speaking of sketch comedy shows from from decades ago uh, I watched a show directed by Ben Stiller recently. Ben Stiller um, show? No, it wasn't <laughs> the Ben Stiller show. But I was listening to Ben Stiller talk about this new show uh, on uh, Fresh Air, the uh, interview uh, show on WHYY. And the question was asked of him, like, what do you think about the award season coming up? And he was saying how he basically – hasn't even been in the awards conversation since the Ben Stiller show. Like that's the last time he remembers being part of the awards conversation, which I thought was kind of sad, but I'm glad that Ben Stiller is finally getting a lot of recognition for this latest that's, thing that he's done. That's called, not true, dude. Perfect midnight. Uh, okay. Wasn't that, you guys remember that movie? No. Uh, let me make sure maybe I'm not saying the name correctly. Yeah, per- yeah. Permanent Midnight. I Permanent think Midnight. Like, yeah. Permanent Midnight. I mean, he got, he got like best actor considered. Like people were talking about maybe he was going to be nominated. He was, he was in the discussion for that movie. Permanent Yeah. Midnight. I, I, I mean, I think he's been in the discussion many times. He yeah. was in the discussion for the secret life of Walter Mitty. You know what I mean? Like, and what else? Uh, there was the Netflix movie too. Uh, the, the uh, oh, yeah, uh, the, um, Meyer, Meyerowitz Chronicles. Meyerowitz Chronicles. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, and uh, he's been in the discussion. Myrowitz stories is the, is the name yeah. Of the film. Come on, Stiller. Uh, but but I mean, I think like so. First of all, he's already delivered the goods with uh, with Escape from Denimora. Uh, that movie is already uh, that show, I should say, has already won a Golden Globe for Patricia Arquette. Um, I think it's eligible for Emmys next year. If it is, it's gonna mm-hmm. do pretty well. I hope at least. Have you guys heard of this show, Escape from Denimora, on Showtime? No. Yeah. No? 
Uh, Devendra has, Jeff hasn't. Uh, I think this show is great. I, hmm. wa- I so I subscribe to uh, Showtime through uh, Prime Video, and uh, disclosure, I'm an employee of Prime Video, and I watched all seven episodes in like three days. Uh, and these episodes are long. They're like minimum fifty-five minutes. I think the longest one is ninety minutes. Uh, but I'm gonna just read the plot summary. So it's based on a true story. Uh, and here is the plot summary. The small, sleepy town of Denimora is home to the Clinton Correctional Facility, a maximum security prison. Two inmates, Richard Matt and David Sweat, become entangled in the life of a married female prison employee in the summer of 2015. Tilly Mitchell, an employee at Clinton Correctional Facility, becomes romantically entangled with both convicts and aids in their escape from the facility. Uh, so the movie's called... Uh, the show, I should say, the seven-part show is called Escape from Denimora, so... Uh, there is an escape at some point. I don't think that's a spoiler. Uh, but I won't say anything else about like how it happens or anything like that. Uh, the main characters are played by Benicio Del Toro, Paul Dano, and Patricia Arquette. And I have to say, all three performances are top-notch. I mean, Patricia Arquette plays this uh, kind of prison employee who exudes this weakness and desperation meanwhile benicio del toro is this like extremely menacing and threatening figure and paul dano is playing like a character i haven't seen him play before this very kind of grounded and rugged sort of dude and uh ben stiller when he's talking about why he wanted to make this show he was saying how uh like have you guys heard of the real life story on which this is based by any chance did any of you like it was like it was like a it spawned this huge wave of coverage in 2015 when it happened. Uh, I, I did not hear about it. I did not know how it ended, so I won't give away how it ended here. But uh, it was a huge deal at the time uh, because, well, you know, uh, I'm not going to spoil anymore. But I'll just say that there's a huge deal. And um, these guys had done something that was very difficult to do. And Ben Stiller, in talking about why he made this, he just he said he wanted to answer the question of how could something like this happen? And it turns out when you place a a lot of people in close proximity to each other where there's massive power dynamics and sometimes, uh, you know, personalities that can be exploited uh, based on their weaknesses, uh, you end up with like a tinderbox that can explode at any time, right? Like you you end up with a really unstable situation. And uh, I think the show does a really great job of of depicting that. So I think this is a, a fascinating show. Um, a lot of people are talking about, I think, Haunting of Hill House, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. that episode that was all done in like one or uh, it was a series of very long takes. I think yeah. it's episode six of yeah, season for like one 15 of minutes. Hill House. Yeah, right. And uh, there is an episode of Escape from Denimora. I think it's episode five of seven. Uh, that is also a series of long takes. And for me, I mean, they're both awesome. Right, they're both technical marvels. But for me, you know, I I, I didn't even finish uh, Haunting of Hill House. Like I did not uh, like that show very much. Escape from Denimora, I marathoned all the way through, and there is an episode that's like a series of long takes that is extremely technically challenging. Uh, that I would put up with, uh, put up against anything in Haunting of Hill House or any like long take shows that have occurred uh, in the last few years. I think it's amazing, and I think Ben Stiller, you know, he's directed uh, a bunch of stuff, but. This is probably the the favorite thing of his that I've seen directed. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he takes a lot of big swings. He, he takes a lot of chances when it comes to the direction, like uh, some of the musical choices and some of the editing choices, and not all of them connect. 
but enough of them do to make this, in my opinion, a very compelling watch. So that's Escape from Danamora. I, I think it's actually one of those shows that is better if you can binge it. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I, I saw a lot of people very frustrated with the show because of how slow it was. Uh, and I think watching it all at once really helps to solve some of those problems. So, How many episodes is it? It's seven episodes. Okay. That's uh, not that bad. Yeah, and, and the, the performances are so good, and Patricia Arquette deserves all the acclaim that she's been getting. Uh, it's such an interesting performance and, and, and a layered one. Uh, and just a lot of memorable moments in the show, guys. I, I, I can't recommend the show highly enough. I, I had a great time watching it. It's it's one of those shows that you know you're still thinking about weeks later. So, uh, Escape from Denmark, baby. I'm, That's, I'm I'm in. That sounds right up my alley. Check it out, Jeff. Check it out. I think I, you'll appreciate I will. it. Escape from Denmark. It's on Showtime right now. Devinder Hardwar. What have you been watching recently? Uh, I finally got to see Cold War, which is a film I heard many great things about uh, around uh, during award season. And this is the next movie from uh, Pavel Pavlikowski, the guy who directed uh, Ida. And this movie is tremendous. It is ostensibly a love story. Uh, It is very much a love story, but it's so unlike any love story film I've seen. Uh, The way I described it when I first saw it, um, it is it's like if Casablanca, you know, were coming from a really fatalistic European angle or something like it has a lot of romanticism in there. It's very romantic at times. And then the harshness of reality and pragmatism and like uh, the circumstances of life come in it as well. Uh, it's a film about uh, budding romance between two people uh, set uh, you know, amid the Cold War, of course, in Poland. Uh, and this movie just charts their relationship uh, starting when uh, one person is a young singer and dancer that uh, the director another person is kind of seeing to be part of like the national singing group for the country to really show off what the country can do. They form a relationship and then time just skips as their relationship kind of comes and goes and doesn't quite connect. And I think this movie, um, it, it charts a course of like maybe 10 to 15 years. And I felt like every time this movie cut to black, I was just holding my breath because you don't know how many years ahead you're going to jump. You don't know where their relationship is going to be. You're, you're not sure about anything really. Uh, and strangely enough, this is a movie. It's really short. It's just a 90 minute movie, but it feels like you're watching a lifetime of a romance. So just really astounding, uh, really heartfelt, but there's a great gut punch of an ending too. So it's a, it's a balance of a lot of things. I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, if you're like me, I feel like I can be kind of a romantic at times while also, being a bit of a pragmatist and I can't quite escape that to those two things. Uh, this movie really fits that for me. That's cold war. It's out in limited release right now. Devendra, anything else you'll be watching this week? Uh, I did see the first two episodes of this season of true detective. So season three, and just want to say it's back, it's you know, back. it's, yes. it's back. It's worth watching again. I think taking a couple years off was probably the right move after season two. Um, it is a bit weird. I think mainly because uh, what I really like about it is Mahershala Ali is the lead character. Just give him and, the Emmy right now. Just yeah, just give, give him, him the Emmy. He's all good. And similar to the first season, uh, it's cut across three different time periods. So it's him as an old man uh, in modern days, him during the 90s, uh, during I think the investigation they're talking about is kind of reopened. And then him, I think, in the late 80s or late 70s. Um, and it's just trying this, uh, you know, disappearance of two kids 
things are really mysterious and he's trying to figure out what's up. Uh, there may be weird occult, you know, leanings around this, these disappearances and murders. So it kind of keeps a great vibe of season one where it is, it is kind of a murder mystery, but also there's something greater and more mysterious going on. So I think it balances that really well. Uh, Jeremy Saunier uh, directed the first two episodes and, uh, you know, it, it looks good. It looks better than season two, at least. It's really sharply directed, uh, really has his style that's both kind of gritty, but also beautiful at times. Uh, I did hear that he left really early, so I guess yes. he couldn't really work with Nick Pizzolatto and, and very as much. He, as he put it at the time, if I recall correctly, <laughs> uh, no comment is what he tweeted after, yeah. he, after he left the show abruptly. Um, but glad to hear that his work is still uh, re- reflected well in the show. And we got two good episodes from him. I think he really sets up the the tone and I, the tone, like the visual style for the season. I think what week. we're saying is it's all going to be downhill after this, right? It's all probably. Gonna be probably. <laughs> well, I, I am looking forward to. It. I know David Milch also uh, co-wrote a couple. I think one episode later in the season, which is going to be kind of interesting to see too. So I think a lot of what was happening here is HBO at least gave Nick Pizzolatto more time to work on this season, but also kind of enlisted people to help him out a little, which, uh, you know, so far it seems like it's going pretty well. The weird thing is though, like as, as much as I like Mahershala Ali, I think the overall mystery is not as interesting as like, uh, was it big little eyes right now or something? So, well, it's interesting too, Mm -hmm. that, um, it really does. Season two is such a departure Mm -hmm. and I think a big failure, but it's interesting that, Oh, going going back to really a formula from the first season, I feel guilty going, yeah, this one's great again because <laughs> it's, it it's just a, seems like yeah. they're going back and kind of mining the same territory where the second season really was trying to stretch its legs. It, it, yeah. It's unfortunate that that's what it takes, but it, it works for me because I'm always like, Always yeah. play the hits, Jeff. Always, always play the hits. I, I am seeing takes of people saying like, oh, man, season two was actually a misunderstood masterpiece. And I just want to say no, no, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Um, but yeah, looking forward to seeing where the rest of this goes. Uh, oh, I was actually thinking of Sharp Objects, not Big Little Eyes. Uh, yeah, Sharp Objects, I think, too. they're both good. But Sharp yeah. Objects is very much also, you know, murder mystery, trying to figure out what happened. Um, I think that just did it so well, so recently, so differently, too, uh, and left such a great impact at the end. Uh, I'm not sure if this could ever, you know, trounce that for me. For now, it's just like watchable, true detective. And, you know, I like seeing that again. All right, well, that's True Detective Season 3. And, Devinder, quick thoughts on Perfume. Uh, Perfume. Another thing. So this is the Netflix series. Yes. Right? Like, yeah. it's a series based off of the film by Tom Tickfer, right? No. It's based off the novel. No. Oh, based on the novel. It's Sorry. It's not. Yeah. It's not. This, this show is wild, guys. Okay, first of all, this is, I believe, I don't know if it was originally a Netflix show, but it's being, you know, licensed by Netflix over here. Uh, but it's a German show inspired by the original novel by Patrick Suskin and also inspired by the Tom Tickford movie. The Tom, the both, both things actually show up in this show. So it's sort of like weird. It's like a weird fan fiction. Re- Wait, when you say both things, you mean like <laughs> plot elements from both things? Yeah. Both the book and the movie show up within the show. So it's, it's almost like um, somebody, you know, watched and read the, perfume which is a really great story i think a tremendous movie haven't read the book but i hear it's very good uh but was so like enamored with it they decide to start like reenacting what they heard or what they read basically so it's about like this group of friends 
who were so yeah who just became obsessed with the book and started to like copycat of of the book or something right and they as perfume the whole idea behind that um having only seen the movie is about that movie was about a guy who had what super senses right is the super sense of smell yeah he could hear anything out and it was it was almost like for him smell was like a superpower and he ended up uh killing women to kind of capture their essence uh, that that was like a weird, wild thing. This show kind of deals with a bit of that too. It's also murder mystery, where it starts with the murder of a of a beautiful woman by her pool. Um, but it's uh, it, I think it goes to much greater like level. You said that her pool killed her. Yeah, her pool totally killed her. <laughs> the but murder of a woman by her pool. <laughs> it's a murder mystery, but also like has so many elements of perfume in there. And the lead character is a detective who, coincidentally, really she doesn't have a sense of smell. So, like, whatever powers of uh, persuasion, the sense that the supposed killers are making don't affect her. So it's, it sounds it's like a, a bird box sequel. Yeah, it's bird box. Yeah, but it's 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 like fan fiction. It's sort of like if uh, somebody she, she's the one with... that survives, right? Yeah, in the in the world where if you smell it, you die. <laughs> yeah. Um, exactly. yeah, exactly. So this is the other sense. Uh, it's really good. I think it's really <laughs> tightly done. Uh, the the whole idea of like capturing senses and like basically manipulating people with the power of sense sounds silly but i think when you see it done like this uh it's really compelling there's a lot of hannibal in here it's a really like it's really interesting stylish and truly messed up murder mystery show like it doesn't go where you think it'll go and i think it's worth watching it's only six episodes easy binge and just a ton of fun if you like the tom tick for a movie definitely check this out mm. Victor G- Di Giovanni in the chat room says a a murder by smell is a smurder. I don't <laughs> kind of rough, <laughs> kind of rough, but you know I appreciate the effort. Uh, yeah, so perfume. You how smell many it, you die though. It's pretty. That's you pretty you smell it, you die. You smell it, you die. That's a that's a, that's a catchphrase looking for <laughs> a, a movie. Look for sure. Yeah. <laughs> AKA what I say when I come out of the bathroom, guys. Yeah. Um, hey yo. The uh, Di- 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 how many episodes have you seen of perfume? It's only six. Ep- I- I've seen all of it. It's only oh. six episodes. Okay, cool. Yeah, and worth so, checking out in your opinion. Worth checking out, I th- I think very much. Yeah, I also like. I know you were going to talk about Dark, Dave, and I I saw a couple episodes of that, and that's also a really cool, mysterious German show. Just didn't really land with me. I'm going to go back and watch that. This one I started, and I was like, I'm on board with everything happening here, mainly because I, I guess I really want a good follow up to Hannibal, and this is as close as I'm going to get for now. All right. Uh, well, I I was going to talk about Dark. First of all, that was Perfume. You can find it on Netflix right now. I was going to talk about Dark, but uh, I think our time is better spent this week talking about glass uh i haven't finished dark yet when i when i do maybe i'll i'll mention it again on what we've been watching uh but before we get to our review of glass we got to mention a film podcast and friend of the slash film cast another movie podcast it's called what? blank check with griffin and david and it celebrates its 200th episode this week with a special look at the most recent offering from director m night Shyamalan, glass now I know what you're saying. You're, you're thinking to yourself, hey, but I'm already listening to a podcast right now that's reviewing Glass. And that's correct. You are. That, that, that is, in yeah. fact, what you're listening to. And also, to. listen to this one first. No, listen, sure. to, listen, to, listen to our show first, right? Because <laughs> you're already in it right now. You're already listening to the, the audio file has already, is already on your phone streaming to you mm-hmm. right now. Uh, so you might as well just finish that off. But then afterwards, check out Blank Check with Griffin and David. Um, for those who are not familiar... Every Sunday, Griffin Newman, star of Amazon's The Tick, and David Sims, senior critic at The Atlantic, go in-depth on the world's most famous directors and discuss their full bodies of work. 
Think M. Night Shyamalan after The Sixth Sense. Blank Check highlights how this accomplished director used and abused his freedom, earned through his escalating critical and commercial successes. Sometimes those checks clear, like with Unbreakable. And sometimes they bounce, baby, like with Lady in the Water or The Happening. Uh, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna pause here and just say like I, I am yeah. actually personally a, a big fan of the show, you know. Um, and I started listening to them a few months ago, probably like I don't know nine months ago or so, maybe a, a little <laughs> over a year. Uh, and I I just think to myself, man, this is uh like they they bring so much insight, not just from <laughs> the films themselves, but also a lot of information about the making of the films. Uh, and all all the journeys that some of these movies took to uh, to get to the big screen, and they also are pretty funny guys. They're very uh, amusing and uh, have a lot of wit to them. So I really yeah. recommend Blank Check. Devendra, I think you're a fan as well, right? I'm a huge fan. I don't actually have time to listen to too many other movie podcasts because uh, why would I? We we have the best one, right? <laughs> <laughs> Except I, I think Blank Check does a lot of great things and I can't stop listening to it. So I've been catching up over the past year. I love it completely. It's a great podcast and we are so honored to be co-promoting each other's shows right now. Um, you can search for Blank Check with Griffin and David on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcasts, and listen to the show that Splitsider called the best movie podcast ever except for the Slash Filmcast. No, I'm just joking. They didn't say that last part. They just called it the best movie <laughs> podcast ever. Uh, and don't forget, even when these directors get to do the projects of their dreams, sometimes these checks clear and sometimes they bounce, baby. Uh, the baby's in there in all caps. And They really own the baby They thing. really want the baby. I feel like, yeah. yeah, yeah. Jeff, were you inspired by them with your baby thing? Jeff's, ba- Jeff's been doing the baby thing? a lot as well, right? Like, Yeah. You mean like yeah. having having babies? No, I that, mean, I listen, and also... I listen some, to just, adding baby me. to the end of every statement yeah maybe maybe yeah. i got that i think i got that from christian spicer he does that a lot around me yes I it up. yes i yeah. listened to uh dlc's like end of the year and i'm pretty sure you said baby like 18 times during no that that's episode. not accurate i said maybe <laughs> twice uh yeah no christian does it all the time in real life and then i sort of picked it up because i'm around him a lot in real life unfortunately and uh unfortunately. And, and then yeah. he and then he like on the show when i do it blames me and says it's like my thing and i got it i was like i learned it by watching you <laughs> all right I don't, I don't like uh, well in any case uh, you can find blank check with griffin and david wherever your fine podcasts are downloaded and listened to uh check out that show right after you finish listening to this awesome episode about glass right another yeah. if you're like hey you're, you're gonna listen to this episode about glass right you're about yep. to listen to an awesome discussion about glass and afterwards you're going to think to yourself that was one of the best discussions of glass i've ever heard in my life but their glass was only half full so they, get, right. they got room they, they got room they got room for more glass with yeah. blank so check you with should split your experience hey oh uh uh um, download there and yeah but, but just make sure your bond with the slash film cast is unbreakable there you go oh yeah baby okay <laughs> thanks to all of our donors this week Brian Stone, Leonard Jobin, or Jobin, Matt Medak, David from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, Canada, Rob Stone from Burbank, California, and James Rosario. Thanks also to new subscribers at the rate of $2 per month, Phil L. Moniz, Stephen Hall, Gustav Norquist, James Wilwaco, DT Music, Economist Forening, Michael Gray, Abraham Zabi, and Michael Pumo uh, for donating at the rate of $2 per month. If you want to support what we do here in the Slash Filmcast, you can always go to paypal.me slash filmcast. That's paypal.me slash the word filmcast. 
or go to SliceFilm.com. Use the SliceFilmCast tab and the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh, all the money you donate does go to help us to uh, keep the show running, help us to pay for some expenses around the show, uh, as well as our time. And we really appreciate it. Uh, never donate if it in any way causes you hardship. Uh, if you if you don't want to donate but you still want to support us, you can always leave us a review. But if you do have some money for us, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Uh, and always appreciate our donors throwing us uh, some money each week. So, Especially from Saskatoon. From Saskatoon. This person wrote Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. That's a lot of Saskas. Saskatoon. Lot of I, have Saskas. Oh, man. I have a friend from Saskatoon. The cool place. Let's get to our review of M. Night Shyamalan's Glass. My bones break easily. I've had 94 breaks in my life. But you have an extraordinary IQ. This is not a cartoon. This is the real world. No way. And yet, some of us still don't die with bullets. Some of us can still bend steel. I've been waiting for the world to see that we exist. May I meet the beast? I hope for your sake that he likes you. That sounds like the bad guys teaming up. A lot of people are going to die. Don't do this. Are you ready? What do we call you, sir? First name, Mr. Last name, Glass. So before we begin our review of Glass, I think we have to say, even even during the non-spoiler section of Glass, uh-huh. that we are going to spoil Unbreakable and Split, right? We kind of have to. Yeah. And yeah. even me saying that is kind of spoiling Unbreakable and Split in some way. Yeah. Every uh, shred of marketing for this movie is spoiling Unbreakable and Split. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I, 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 you know, our split episode is still one of my most memorable episodes, like just one of my favorites, because Jeff basically lost his mind yeah. uh, when we mm-hmm. talked about split. Right? It's, we had to it's, tranquilize it's, Jeff. Yeah. It's, a, it's a memorable episode because I told people to stop listening to our show. <laughs> yeah. And we told them like five times. And there are some people who wrote in and said, hey, Jeff, I'm really glad you told us five times because I was still listening after yeah. the fourth time. Yeah. Yeah. But then the fifth time I was like, I'm going to listen to Jeff now. Right. Yeah, sometimes it takes it takes that many times, you know. Indeed. By the way, I, I'm not sure why so many people just sit there and listen through spoilers for movies they haven't <laughs> seen. Yet. What what is that? Yeah, the, is that? that's an after dark topic, yeah, I guess. After dark yeah, topic. Yeah. After dark topic. So so uh, M Night Shyamalan uh, is about to complete the greatest comeback in Hollywood history, or one of them at mm-hmm. least, right? Uh, he had been in director's jail after making a series of uh, increasingly artistically catastrophic films. Uh, I'm thinking The Happening. I'm thinking After Earth. I'm thinking Lady in the Water. I'm thinking uh, that other one, Last Airbender. Right? Last Airbender. Last Airbender. Last Airbender. I feel like After really Earth was actually part of his comeback because he had to like he had to direct somebody else's script basically. So that was a paycheck movie for him. Uh, I have... The others right before that are yeah. definitely much more. I was. I was with him throughout all of that. I was yeah, still oh, wow. in the Shyamalan corner until The Last Airbender. And that, yeah. that was when he broke my heart. So here's the thing. Uh, he was in director's jail. Things were going really badly for him. And then uh, he made this movie called The Visit. And I, so I've read like 
uh, I think it was a Rolling Stone interview with him. I've read uh, the Vulture interview. I think I sent that one to you guys to check out. Uh, and he made this movie called The Visit. And he was thinking, to, he self-financed it. I think it was like a budget around $5 million or so. Which we reviewed, too. Go back and listen to that. Yeah. Uh, and that movie, uh, The Visit, he he took around to Hollywood. He's like, hey, look at this movie. I, I've already made it. All I'm asking is for you guys to help me distribute. Like, help me market it, get it out into theaters. Everyone said no. Yeah. Uh, and he was thinking, like, that That was apparently when he, he really started getting worried. Like, is his career really over? Like, has he fully lost it, right, at that moment when he, he couldn't get anyone to, to, to buy the visit? Um, and then he teamed up with Jason Blum. And uh, the visit, which was made for five million dollars, grossed ninety-eight million dollars worldwide. That's some ROI, baby. Yeah. And then, uh, then he made Split, which uh, was a movie that was made for I think around nine million dollars and yeah. grossed also self-financed too. Also self-financed, man. And also and and grossed uh, two hundred seventy-eight million dollars worldwide. Uh, and Split, of course, for those of you who listen to our episode or have seen the film. Uh, hid from its its marketing one of the most potent uh, facts about the movie, which is that it is a backdoor sequel to Unbreakable, which was uh, still like a wasn't the most successful movie that he ever made, but still like that movie grossed a yeah. uh, hundred million dollars when it came out in uh, two thousand. Right, so not bad at all, not bad at all. Still, I'm, sure, I'm sure M Night thought to himself, "Swing away, swing away, <laughs> swing as hard as you can," yeah. and he did baby uh we're just trying to get as many babies in here as possible yeah so yeah, thing. uh so split is remarkable like no matter what you think of the film which i actually didn't care for that much right uh mm -hmm. you gotta admire the fact that they he, he made a film released it without saying that it was a sequel to unbreakable I mean, it's just amazing it's amazing well, i mean we're kind of reiterating some of the stuff we said in our review of that movie yeah. but yes the thing that I love about that is that Unbreakable in 2000 was released as a thriller. It was marketed yeah. as a thriller. It was released as this – the follow-up, the reteaming of Shyamalan and Bruce Willis from The Sixth Sense, which was this really uh, big box office hit. But it was a thriller. It was a full-on sort of horror overtones thriller and here he was back the same team they were going to do another thriller about this train wreck and this man who survived and you were going to get the same bone tingling chills that you got from the sixth sense which is about ghosts and scary stuff and that movie was secretly not that genre at all it yep. was secretly a superhero movie what a twist and, yeah and so split pulls off the same thing, which is, hey, here you're going into this crazy psychological thriller from the man who just made the visit, which is this horror movie and this, you know, this Blumhouse Pictures, which makes horror movies, and he's back tingling your spine all over again with this movie about a guy with multiple personalities who kidnaps people and tortures them, and oh man, you're gonna get you it's no, it's a super villain origin story. It's the same <laughs> trick which i think is so thematically perfect mm -hmm. to have the sequel do the same magic trick again 
and pull it off again. And in retrospect, there were a lot of signs. I, I, I think uh, signs. signs. Nice. Hey, uh, but the uh, the uh, the posters, yeah, kind of mirrored each other. And so also, great. as we were watching the movie. I think it definitely became apparent. There's a point in Split where um, James McAvoy's character is kind of going through a transformation sequence in a train. And I was thinking to myself, hmm, we're back in uh, Where else have we seen trains in train. M. Night, M. Night yeah. movies, right? This yeah. is really interesting. And that's when, like, my, my like, uh, uh, genre sense started tingling. Because I was like, are we going to do this? Are we going there? And then, yeah, by the end of that movie, I almost jumped out of my chair. It was so good. I was just talking about this uh, after seeing Glass uh, with a friend, and I, I, I really believe that that moment in that theater is one of the greatest cinematic yeah. feelings I've ever had. Mm-hmm. Just that that level of I can't believe this is actually happening right now when that music kicks in, the end of Split, and the camera pans down, and you actually see Bruce Willis sitting there. It, it's unmatched. It's like, yeah. I, I know that you guys, there are a lot of people, I won't put it on you, but there are a lot of people who kind of call that a gimmick. I do not care. I what, it, Call it whatever you want. The it works. Feeling, uh, the feeling yeah. I had is worth 10 times what I paid to see that movie. It, it is, but here, here's I'll, the I'll thing. just say, it's, like, yeah, it's not a gimmick in my opinion. Yeah. It's, it's more that a... Uh, a twist ending that reveals that this film split is part of the unbreakable universe does not, in my opinion, redeem what was overall a, an unengaging film. Right. Sure. Um, and the, the other thing too, by the way, is that it's a great twist for a very, very niche group of film nerds, right? <laughs> like his twists, the, the impact of them have slowly, you know, the, the impact has dwindled to a very small audience and that hasn't been very good for him too. I think so. I don't know. So, here comes Glass, which is out this weekend. As of us recording this episode, it's already made about $100 million worldwide. The budget for this movie was around $20 million, again self-financed. M. Jeez. Night Shyamalan in interviews was saying how he felt like he was at a casino. Like every time he every time he got the roulette wheel, he just put it all again. He just like doubled down, right? Rather than I'm sure his wife and kids are like, what are you doing? What are you doing, man? That's my college right there. <laughs> he, I mean, he said that if he – if uh, uh, Glass did not do well. It would impact his mortgage. That's what he said. Uh-huh. <laughs> or it, it would, he would have to do something about his house and his like living situation is what he said. Uh, I think he's going to be absolutely just fine. Yeah. Um, because this alert. movie is already it doing it's not, it's not like there were there were some estimates that this movie would make like over $60 million opening weekend. That did not happen. But it's still going to be a, a relatively solid hit. Um, and so gone is any pretension of this being like a backdoor Sequel, it's very clearly marketed as a sequel to Unbreakable and Split. Like, that's all been revealed in the marketing. Although the movie still does hold some surprises. Mm-hmm. Jeff Kanata, what did you think of Glass? Well, Dave, <laughs> I guess you could say my feelings are best summed up in the form of a limerick. Are they? Yeah. For some reason, people get pissed at a clever Shyamalan twist. But this movie proves it's better to choose to believe that magic exists. Nice. All right. Not bad. Not bad, Jeff. I <laughs> and think... that's what I love about this movie. I, we, it's, it's, I can't really talk about what I love most about it, not in spoilers. Yep. But I will say this movie is, to my mind, I think there's a lot of ways to read it, actually. And we'll, we'll talk about several of them, I'm sure, in spoilers. But 
to my mind, it's a meditation on magic and what's special about believing in magic. And I loved it. I think this movie wears its heart on its sleeve. It is not the sequel that I think anybody expected. It is Mm -hmm. really him doing what he wants to do. And it is unruly and clunky at times. There are definitely things that I think could have been executed better, but I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. Um, I, it has, it's got a lot of big ideas and it's got a lot to say, and he just doesn't care about anything other than saying what he wants to say. And I totally admire that. I think there are flashes of absolute brilliance. There are shots in this movie that are as iconic as anything he's ever done in his entire oeuvre. He is uh, – th- there are uh, moments of tension and excitement. Just the idea of seeing these three characters that have been set up over the course of decades. You know, it's not <laughs> – we're not just talking years. It's like it's it's crazy um, and to see it all come together and it's a, it's something I never thought would happen, and it's really cool to see a, a, a true unbreakable sequel that embraces its form and actually has some interesting things to say about that, especially in the context of where we are with comic book movies now in our culture as, as opposed to where it was in 2000 when Unbreakable came out. Um, so there's a lot still to say in spoilers, but I think this movie is is one that – Clearly, a lot of a lot of my friends didn't like a lot of the people I walked out of the movie theater when I saw this didn't like it. And I don't think it's a movie for everybody. It's not. Yeah, I think a a movie that I can guarantee you're going to like. But for my sensibility, for me, I really enjoyed it and uh, I found it very satisfying and very interesting and so fun. Devendra, so curious to hear what you think of Glass. Yeah, so uh, I feel like my relationship with uh, M Night is uh, is a bit tempestuous. I guess like I, <laughs> I've loved the guy for so long. I loved Unbreakable when uh, I saw it in theaters with my family, and it was just like such a great experience. Let me and ask you: uh, my Is uh, Unbreakable uh-huh. your favorite M Night film? What's your favorite? Mm. Or is it Sixth Sense? What's uh, kind of curious? What it's your probably, yeah, it's Unbreakable. I would say nice. Unbreakable for yeah. sure. Like I love that movie. Because uh, it's weird and clunky, but it does its own thing. And I think Split was precisely that, and Glass is precisely that. But I will say, I, I think it was uh, Scott Wampler from uh, Birth Movies Death who <laughs> retweeted this gif, the Seinfeld gif, of George picking up, uh, what was it, a donut from the trash? <laughs> and then, like, his... Uh, I think it was a chocolate girl- eclair, if I recall. Yeah, chocolate eclair, and his, like, girlfriend's mother saw it and was shocked. And it's like, George is Shyamalan fans. The donut <laughs> is like Shyamalan movies <laughs> being picked up from the trash. And everybody else is his girlfriend's mother. Just being horrified <laughs> by what we love. That's pretty good. Um, That's pretty good, man. And I do kind of feel like that. That's okay, like, this is not the sequel. I've been dreaming of an Unbreakable sequel for forever since I first saw that movie. This is not the sequel that I wanted. Um, but it is very much its own thing. It's very much Shyamalan, like, I think doubling down on a lot of the themes he introduced in that movie and in Split, I think doing something really interesting. You know, right now we are being bombarded by superhero movies. And so much so that I feel like we're getting to a point where they don't even really mean much to me. Like, I I, I was left cold by Infinity War, a movie that affected a lot of people. And they, in many ways, is a great achievement. 
But all that, half the universe dying left me cold because it didn't feel like much was happening. And this movie dares to question why we are so enamored with those stories, dares to question like, you know, what those stories actually mean to us. And in a weird way, we're definitely going to get some really interesting discussions here in spoilers. But I think for a major chunk of it, it almost like it almost made me wonder, like, was the twist going to be that actually superheroes don't exist? Actually, these powers were a lie the whole time. There, there's a lot going on in this movie. Um, I, I, it's definitely clunky. It's definitely not for everybody. And I can't even say I, I loved it. But it's a movie I really respect. And I really am interested in talking about where it goes. This is a movie I feel like we're going to be talking about forever. So there's that. I don't know about that, but it was our most anticipated film of 2019, Devendra. Definitely mine, uh, yeah. First of all, I'm, I'm shocked. Like, <laughs> it's all downhill what are the from odds? here, guys. 2019, it's all downhill from what, here. What are the odds that statistically, you know, of a movie that has, what, like 36% run Tomatoes right now, um, that statistically uh, <laughs> we have three people on this podcast who are at least okay with it and actually like Glass? We are I'm, we are George eating the eclair from the trash. Yeah, that is who and, we. <laughs> but he also it's a movie made for people like us. But that's but that's not even really fair because a lot of people like us didn't like it. Yeah, I, I'm I'm Dave. I know that as I walked out of the movie, I sent you a text saying I think you were. Go- I thought Davinder was going to like it. I was like I really think David, David's going to hate this. Oh well, yeah, I, I would have put money, Dave. You would have hated this movie. So yeah. I, I, I will tell you, I have cooled on it considerably since I first saw it. Um, but. Here's what I think is is good about like okay okay let me just I have a few I have some very contradictory conflicting thoughts about glass. Uh here's what I like about glass. First of all, it's just awesome to see these characters again on the big screen, right? Uh-huh. I think uh certainly at least two of the characters, uh Mr. Glass and David Dunn, uh, Unbreakable in my opinion is a great film. It's not my favorite of his movies, but I mean uh not only just like the backdoor superhero like it's a it's a surprise superhero origin story but the fact that um how it was introduced like there there's some sequences in that movie that are still stand up to this day i mean the opening train crash sequence mm-hmm. uh yeah. when the weights. Uh, yeah. when he when he's in the hospital the wait sequence um that score is just like we don't we don't hear scores Score like that amazing, anymore. Either. Right? Like, yeah. there's so many great things about the movie. The, like all, all the uh, the sequence where uh, David Dunn's son picks up a gun and threatens to shoot him because he wants to prove that he's uh, yeah. a superhero, and that all takes place in one long continuous shot. It's super tense. Also, love that they were able to bring back Spencer Treat Clark for this one. Yeah, unbelievable, yeah. unbelievable. Something you know, it's really weird when 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 you first saw Unbreakable. Do you guys think like, oh, it's it's a it's Bruce Willis and kind of like a Haley Joel Osment lookalike, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you kind of see like Haley Joel Osment lookalike grown up, and it's like that's not what Haley Joel Osment looks like. That's what I thought. Anyway. <laughs> also, um, Haley Joel Osment does not look normal right now as an adult like his face just does not belong in the adult body but that's a whole other thing <laughs> he, he just looks very cute i think is what it's, it's very strange I, I yeah i'm getting like weird cognitive dissonance going on there <laughs> anyway uh so it's great to see these characters back on the big screen um because they were introduced so memorably in unbreakable and just to see them share this you know the scene one more once more bounce off each other it's pretty awesome, and uh, like that—that that in and of itself is kind of like makes it worth it. Uh, Shyamalan, I think, in my opinion, is still really great at suspenseful filmmaking. He understands that uh, there is a lot of tension when you don't cut, 
right? There's a lot of scenes in his movies where there's no cuts or there's very few cuts. And I love the Dry Oil Huile Potageurs by Nukes. This stunning oil makes me feel absolutely gorgeous. I'm a big fan too. It leaves my skin and hair so soft and beautiful. Have you heard about the new Huile Potageurs Floral by Nukes? It has the same formula as the original oil, but with a fresh and delicate scent. It smells amazing. Fall in love with Huile Potageurs Floral by Nukes. And get 20% off all Nukes products by using the code floral at uk.nukes.com. A cut releases tension. And there's many scenes where like, he just lets things play out, no cuts. And he, he has this mastery of uh, show, like relating the foreground to the background in ways that are mm-hmm. really interesting. right? There's, and revealing, revealing right. things in a camera move. That's right. That's yeah. right. There's often shots where like there's different things going on in the foreground than the background, right? And like the relationship to the two is really interesting. And uh, we can point out a couple of them in, in the spoilers, but I think uh, some of the filmmaking is still pretty great. I was listening to Mark Kermode's review of this movie, and something he said is that Shyamalan's work often straddles the line between really brilliant and extremely stupid. And <laughs> I think that's the case with this movie i think yeah i think if yeah. this movie had come out 16 17 years ago uh, i would think a lot more uh positively on it than i do in actuality today because it seems and, and in fact like the, he had the idea for this movie at the time that unbreakable came out right mm-hmm. uh but it seems to completely ignore everything we've learned about superhero films in the last 15 years like it treats sure. the audience as though they don't know what a superhero film is. And well, you remember the beginning of Unbreakable is like it started with like facts. Yeah, about facts about comic, comic books, books, right? But Do that you was know, like uh, millions of comic books are read every year, and they try to like justify why they exist. Right, and, and that I was I fine. Don't think you need to do that now. That yeah. was fine pre Iron Man, right? That was fine pre Iron Man, but now like we have the MCU. Uh, superhero films are basically all that's being released in theaters right now, and so <laughs> I don't think you need to ha- like pause. The, you don't need to grind the film to a halt at numerous moments to clunkily explain uh, what explain. an origin story is. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, it, it is very uh, – I don't even know if condescending is the right word, but like clunky. It's, it feels very yeah. out of – it feels like it's out of a different time, right? Yeah. Um, he also just doesn't trust us. I think narratively he doesn't know – what to tell the audience sometimes. And that is consistently a problem in this movie. <laughs> Dylan McGinnis in the chat room says, but how else would we know what a limited edition showdown is? Good question. <laughs> Good question. Dylan. But no, it's uh, um, something else. So, uh, so those are some of my, my overall thoughts on the movie. And then I think that uh, the, the concept, I, I mean, first of all, this movie plays out largely in one location uh, and it's like kind of a, a forehander as it were right you got samuel l jackson you got bruce willis you got james mcavoy and you got sarah paulson right like it's primarily those characters and uh it's it's very play-like and jeff you know you and i we both like very play-like things it, it allows like the sheer force of the acting to take center stage and yeah. uh, and I think that happens here. I think that happens here to a large mm-hmm. degree. This movie would not function on any level if you didn't have these four actors who are all extremely good at what they do. Yeah, I think but, this, but it might function better if there was a better dialogue. I think yeah, I think the script kind of lets. <laughs> I think the script and the story does let them down a little bit. And I think mm-hmm. that there's a lot of stuff, particularly towards the last third, uh, 
that is better in concept than it is in execution. Like, I love the idea of what it is trying to say and do, but the execution is at times very bad. So, uh, but at the same time, the year guys, a puddle of water um, of the year. (laughs) So at the same time, (laughs) I think that, um, uh, Shyamalan is swinging for the fences here. Like he's, he, he has some big ideas, some bold ideas. He does, he DGAF doesn't give an F what yeah. you think or want. And he uh, doesn't have to because he's, it's completely self-financed. Yeah, it's completely self-financed. He can do whatever he, he completely can Man. do whatever he wants. And so, uh, I would rather watch this movie than many of the Marvel films that, you know, I'd rather watch this movie than like Thor the Dark World, for instance, you know, a movie that has like six times the budget of this film. Uh, because I, I want a film that's different, that tr- takes some chances. I prefer that. Uh, but it doesn't all connect. And, and I, yeah. I, part of me loves it more for its warts. You know, it's a movie that embraces that, like I say, I think it's a movie that, that wears its heart on its sleeve. It's like, I'm out here. I'm here. I am, <laughs> I, you know, like I'm just a movie standing in front of a boy. Just a, just, yeah. It's holding, you know, it's boombox in the rain staring yeah. at your window. It, it really is vulnerable. It's a movie that's like mm-hmm. it's it's laying its cards on the table and it, it it is kind of unabashedly hopeful and sweet in a weird way. And like it, I just I love it for all that. Like yeah, I kind yeah. of like it more for how clunky it is because it's it comes from this genuine place. Yeah, but but Jeff, taking that analogy a step further, I do feel like this movie is Shyamalan, like holding his stereo up, uh, you know, doing doing that moment. Uh, except the audience is not in that house. The audience <laughs> is in the house across the street. The house that Marvel and, built. Yeah, the house that Marvel. <laughs> I know, but we're across the street, right? And we can hear the music. We can hear him shouting. We're like, "Hey, man, turn around! We're over here." <laughs> We want to love you too, but he he he's continuing on with his rant in the well, empty house. This is this analogy analogy is getting very labored here, but yeah. uh, why don't we get the spoilers, guys? Now you're looking for the secret. Can I see this coming? No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. So we are going to reveal spoilers for Split, and there are going to be some big ones. Uh, so I, I think genuine, genuine warnings too. Like I think some people are planning to just sit through this, and maybe not as much as Split. It is definitely worth waiting and seeing this movie before you hear the spoilers. Okay, so yeah. here, here come the yeah, spoilers. Especially if you saw the the other two. Go ahead. Here come the spoilers. Um, there's several big twists at the end of this. What, what are, some people have called the fact that the the train that Mister Glass sabotaged was the train that. Uh, Crumb's father was on a, a twist, which I I don't actually think that's a twist. I think I like think we knew that. Implied split. Well, I think we yeah, I, I think we knew that from Split, right? So it's I, I don't such actually a think that's yeah. badass reveal though of going from new footage to old footage. So in good. One so move. I got chills. I got chills. Amazing. Watch it. Amazing. And also apparently there's some deleted footage in there too that is from Unbreakable. So like there there's a lot going on. Yeah, they use the <laughs> same they use the same footage from Unbreakable and some some of which is apparently new, but like yeah, uh like the the shots are the same. I just watched Unbreakable again and some of the shots of the train are very similar. Um okay, so that's one twist. Another twist is uh that uh that Sarah Paulson, I mean her origin like the whole thing was all very sketchy. Like she's like I have 3 days to blah 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 and it's like, she's well, the worst psychiatrist in the world or something's up. Yeah, that doesn't yeah. make any sense. So there has to be some bigger explanation and of course you find out that 
she is part of a secret society of uh, <laughs> superhero uh, gaslighters, I guess is what they are, right? That they, they try to convince superheroes that they're not actually superheroes, um, <laughs> that it's all in their head. And this is because uh, their organization, which is 10,000 years old, wants to preserve the status quo. Like the balance is better the way it is without like people. They're like the Assassin's Creed order, except all they do is just tell superheroes they're not super or kill them. Well, yeah. I think this was a new new way. Usually they just kill them. They just yeah. kill the superheroes. But this yeah. time she wanted to try something new that was more humane by gaslighting them. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, apparently I said spoilers for Split and Not Glass, so sorry about that. This is actually spoilers for Glass going on right now. Um, <laughs> and the uh, so <laughs> what's hilarious about that uh, society is a few things I want to point out, gentlemen. Um, number one is if you're a fan of the movie Jumper, as I am, yes, you'll yeah, know that maybe. Samuel L. Jackson actually plays basically a member of that society in the movie Jumper, <laughs> right? Uh, his character in Jumper is that there should be no superheroes. Like everyone, it's not fair that for some people to have godlike powers and others to not. And so, is the shoe is on the other foot now, huh, Mister Glass? Okay, that's one thing. Uh, another funny thing is apparently all these secret society people uh, get tattoos of uh, four leaf clovers on their or you know shamrocks, three leaf clovers, three yeah shamrocks on their wrist. Yeah, they're not even like special clovers. That's how that's how normcore yeah, they are. They're the normcore police. That's the point. Okay? Yeah, yeah, you are not special. Everyone's a three leaf clover, but not it, you. It is kind of. Uh, I mean, it does kind of. Uh, it, it's a poor way to maintain a secret society if you get a tattoo in a very obvious spot in your body. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. Nobody right knows. On. Nobody knows what that is. <laughs> I feel like the bigger problem for them is that all their meetings apparently take place in public restaurants. In, so in they public restaurants, that's how badass they are. They, they take place <laughs> in public restaurants with all the secret society plus five other people, right? That is how their meetings take place because once you know how uh, the, expensive it is to rent out a Chili's. <laughs> yeah, but apparently Jeff, the bartenders and the chefs are also part of the society. They're all they're in on it. They're all in on it. Yeah. They're all in on it. But it's like, hey, let's all meet at the restaurant plus three other strangers. Uh, and then once the strangers leave, it's like, hey, we can now begin. Right? And when, when another stranger enters, they just have to stop. And they have to wait <laughs> till their order is done. And they finish their meal. As we were saying, <laughs> item three on the agenda after that person finishes his Angus burger. Um, <laughs> the guy walks out of the bathroom. What? <laughs> what? I feel like uh, the, that whole thing with the, the society... And the restaurants. That's how I feel whenever I leave a restaurant. Like the party just begins. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, pretty silly, pretty silly, uh, in my opinion. And then it's the, it's the FOMO society. <laughs> the FOMO society. And then the big twist at the end is that Samuel L. Jackson, who who maybe didn't even know that this secret Shamrock Society existed, right? Uh, somehow anticipated their actions and knew to release the recorded footage. Of all the exploits of the heroes, in order that other people, uh, it like makes it so that other people will will see this footage and be inspired to to uh, be their own superheroes. Which I actually pretty much like because that was that was his whole goal in yeah, Unbreakable. In movie, like that, yeah. it, it goes way back. So for so him, he, that motivation seemed correct. Yeah, well, I, watching Unbreakable, it's so earnest when he says, you know, like it's terrible to not have a purpose, right? And <laughs> uh, it, it is genuinely moving. But here's where I think that this ending is kind of uh, dumb is uh, 
that uh, and a lot of people have pointed this out that if you saw that footage today you would think it was part of some viral stunt by sure. some company sure. you, you know it's like oh chronicles viral marketing or something like that for the movie chronicle you know like it, it, the idea yeah, that that footage alone that stuff yeah. what'd you say jeff it's it's too easy to fake and it's not spectacular enough to be uh to even like get get enough hits on, on right. youtube right be- I, I like so this is where i like the idea but i feel like he was hamstrung by this 20 million dollar um budget and also yeah. like i said if this movie had come out in 2000 it'd be a different story like like yeah. we have at this point we see I, i've seen more extraordinary things than that footage before breakfast this morning you yeah. know what i mean like any footage of people in like wingsuits just jumping off of mountains i think is more impressive than david dunn bending bars slowly <laughs> slowly <Yeah. laughs> exactly so th- it's it's like where i like the idea but like the execution is bad and then of course like that scene where uh, they are in the in the in the, <laughs> in the train terminal that seems so empty. Uh, like there's so few people in there. I, I just, you know I just kept thinking of you, Divindra, because uh-huh. you live in New York City, and it's like when they're like, hey, hey, Osaka Tower in Philadelphia. Like uh, Philadelphia is like M Night Shyamalan's uh, <laughs> like like Christmas for Shane Black. You know, like yeah. he is he sets all his movies in Philadelphia because he lives Has there. To be a character. He, yeah. he likes shooting his movies there, and it's like. When they brought up Osaka Tower or whatever, the grand opening, the whole world will be watching. And I'm like, no one gives a shit about anything that happens in Philadelphia. (laughs) Also, I was thinking, like, this movie costs $20 million. We're never going to get to that tower. That tower only exists screenshots. I love it. I love that he has these little tricks that make the movie feel bigger than it is. Like, I, 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 I give him credit for that. That's all part of the, like, the game that he's playing is, is... I want to make a movie that feels huge but didn't cost huge. And I, 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 love- I, I certainly appreciate it. It almost feels like a diehard homage too. Like, oh, we're gonna see, we're gonna see Bruce Willis back in a big ass tower kicking ass or not. I don't know. It's just like I, if you're gonna, if you're not even gonna deliver on the goods, which you know, I, I agree that like some people have said that's part of the point is you're not delivering yeah. on this big sh- showdown. Uh, but if you're not gonna deliver, why not choose an actual location? <laughs> Why not choose like Grand Central Station or you know let's say Philly, the Chrysler Building? Can only you know? do so much. They can only do so much. But I would, uh, I, I would, I, I, what one ahead. thing I just want to mention: the big showdown of this movie happens at at the forty five minute mark, like the big fight. It's it's really weird how this movie is structured, right? Because the first part is the direct unbreakable follow up that we've been waiting for. Like what what has David Dunn been doing this whole time? And apparently, not much. Apparently, just like going around, like dealing with small time crime. Uh, but then we get the big showdown that in a normal movie, that would be the final fight. Right. Right. It's more like 20 minutes into the movie, by the way. But yeah, um, Devendra, I'm sorry, Jeff, what were you going to say? I what I was hoping was going to happen at the end. And maybe this is a budget thing or or maybe it just wasn't the right idea. I really think the movie would have landed with a much bigger wallop for me if they had been sitting at that train station waiting, 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 looking around. And then slowly people came in and one of them started to fly. And then the other one had fire shoot out of their hands. And the other, like they, like it was this convergence point for all these superheroes who'd been repressing their powers. And so we just see like the world has awakened to superheroes. That would have been, I think such a badass ending to that movie. It's like, Oh, we did it. Glass did it. He awoke, all these latent superheroes who've been hiding themselves yeah. in the world. I think that like, that wasn't the point though, to even awaken these superheroes. I think it was more like 
just just awareness. Just like you can believe in something greater than no, I, the other I, 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 around you, right? I disagree. I think it, I think Jeff is right that that wasn't like his whole. Here's my big problem with the ending, mm-hmm. uh, other than the execution, is this to me feels like an an ending that I would have liked in a different film. Yeah, is that. Uh, it's a very like uh, it's an ending that's very much like the theme of the Incredibles, right? Which is, <laughs> hey, we should let incredible people be incredible. That's the theme of the Incredibles, right? Like let let the great people be great. That's the whole point of that movie, and that's what this movie is. Hey, don't let people, you know, hide your light under a bushel. If you have amazing powers, you got to let that let that out, let that shine, let that let let it's, people it's know a about that. Difference, yeah, yeah, I think there's a subtle difference here, and I think. The thing that I love most about this movie is that it's it's about believing. It's not about oh you have this innate trait and you're yes. amazing. It's yeah. about you're not believing just born with it. it. You're not just right. special because of that. Yeah, yeah. It, and and the the key to how David Dunn gets out of his cell is that he has to believe again that he can get out that he can knock down steel. Mm-hmm. And it I I view this movie very much as like I said a meditation on magic and and. And even further, it seems to me that there's a very legitimate reading of this movie that it's the filmmaker saying why he makes movies. It's like I want to put something out in the world that people watch and believe that there is magic in the world. And Mm -hmm. all of these people want to tell me that, you know, my twists are stupid or that, you know, I I can't make movies or that I, I need to be held back and not have these big, grand, open hearted ideas and I just want to create movies that show magic and 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 take you to a place and surprise you and give you something unexpected and 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 maybe I'm layering you know maybe I'm projecting too much on that but I really no, think, I, feel like that's a legitimate reading. I, I think yeah. that not only is it legitimate, I think it is the reading. I think it, I think it is it, it is a continuation of the themes of the film uh, found, the themes found in the film Lady in the Water. Right, that movie was all about hey. Uh, there's the storyteller and he's like the key to everything and, but not the evil critic. Don't listen to the critics who are going to say, you know, that your, the, your stuff is bad. Like, don't listen to the right. critics. Like, don't listen to people who are going to tell you, like, it's not true. You gotta go get out there. You gotta believe. Right. So I, I, I think it it's, is. Yeah. Go ahead. It go ahead. is that combined with split. And the whole idea behind split was that the, the traumas we suffer, the things we go through in life, in some way make us stronger. And I think that was super clunky and split. But here, when they wrap in, I think like what David Dunn had dealt with early on in life, what right. uh, Elijah had, had like, what they all did. Yeah. And then you think about like every superhero movie, really like I, I was thinking of like into the spider verse where the common bond with all these spider men and spider people is that they, they all lost somebody they loved. And yeah. that's something they have to deal with. So I found that super interesting. And so you really doubled like down that. Yeah. that. That's why I loved. That's why I love this movie. It's it. I think it 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 really is nakedly about that stuff and vulnerable in its own way. It's it's sort of bearing its heart to the world and saying, "I want. I just want to make give you something special. I want to give right. you some magic to believe in." And we can all do that if we all believe in something. If we all you know, look to something beautiful instead of being cynical and, you know, and crabby all the time, we could all do this. And I, I, I mean, that's very much my sensibility as well. And so I think that's why I liked it. <laughs> here's, my I, problem, I, I, here's my problem with the ending though, is, uh-huh. uh, as I said, like, I, I think it would be a better ending or theme for a different film because, uh, Mr. Glass, for those who don't remember, 
murdered at least 500 innocent people, right? Like, well, or how, however many people. people. And yeah. he he basically becomes a hero of this film. And uh, that strikes me as at least inconsistent in terms of... I don't of... think he becomes a hero. Like, it, because his our main introduction to him, talking again, is literally slicing some guy's throat open. You <laughs> yeah, know, he's that's, still a that's bad guy. But he's a hero. Like, yeah. everyone is sitting... Those three people... At the end, are sitting on that uh, train bench, like waiting for Mister Glass's plan to come to fruition. And I'm pretty sure you, as the audience, are meant to root for him. Um, so I, I just think it's muddled w- at best because uh, I don't know that we want uh, people uh, realizing the true extent of their powers if they're going to murder innocent people. You right, know, right. Um, so the next movie is going to be a hellscape of just like police don't know how to <laughs> deal with all these superpowered people. Basically, like it's a. Uh... It's not a good ending. I don't. I don't know if it felt if I felt he was a hero, but I definitely felt sympathetic to like what he was trying to do. That's not necessarily heroic, I think. And uh, this movie also does the same thing for uh, for uh, Mister Mister Horde, Mister Split. I don't know what we're gonna call him. The Horde, the Kevin Kevin yeah, Crumb, Kevin Crumb, yeah. Kevin. Yeah. yeah, but like it, it does the same thing too, where he he ate people in Split. <laughs> And in this movie, like we see, um, I think he eats Casey, someone in this movie too. <laughs> yeah, in this movie, we see Casey Cook come back. Uh, I think she's the person who's changed the most and is just like not like the character that she was in the previous movie. Uh, but her power is like uh, just her ability through love and empathy to kind of control him a little. And I did start to feel sympathetic towards what what you know the horde was going through as well, like what that guy was going through. And I think there is an interesting balance there. The only person who's like genuinely good, I feel, is David Dunn. But everybody else has like degrees of gray. I think that's I, a... I thought it was ballsy that he kills all three of them off too. Um... I yes, except for Murder Puddle. I can't. Yeah, that, that's that <laughs> is a huge bummer, right? Devendra is that Murder like? Yeah. Is, I, I felt like all, each of them got a decent death, except yes. for David Dunn, who is drowned in a puddle by a faceless henchman. Yeah. Uh, feels like a a bad way to go for a character that you set up 18 years ago. Yeah, uh, pretty cool shot though. Like the camera's <laughs> in the puddle. I mean, I that was pretty rad. Yeah, and, and the, and then I guess like, the henchman is just like, I'm just gonna hold this guy here for 30 seconds, I guess, and then he just steps back, and then Sarah Paulson comes up and like delivers her monologue to his like dead body. I don't know if that's happening after or before or while he's dying. Like, and then I think then his son comes up. And the guards are still right there. <laughs> the guy who killed his father. Yeah, it's it's yeah. very it's a very weird moment. But she died in that tank. Like I feel like that would have been at least a little more, a little more heroic for him as a character. Yeah, it's 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 a it's a rough ending for that character. Yeah. Um, but uh, we we talking. I was talking earlier about like foreground and background. There is that cool moment in the movie when you know. Uh, crumb says to mr glass you know just keep rolling forward and and then you see him like roll forward while uh you know the horde yeah. kind of takes out the beast kind of takes so out those guys back. that's just a, that's a cool idea for a, a scene and i think it's pretty well executed cool idea um, and also cheap special effects so that's right like, uh, that's right yeah, cheap. and for him that's yeah right. that's right um any other moments you guys want to want to mention before we wrap it up here? I, I think like we've we've all aired our thoughts on on the finale, uh, which is that uh, <laughs> I thought it was a little a little bit weird. I, I, I like the message of the movie. I like the message of the movie, which is um, do not accept the status quo that there. You know, Walter Chaw wrote this amazing review of this mm-hmm. film for Film Freak Central 
where he, he kind of frames the message of the movie as like, this movie is saying there are many entrenched interests that want you to accept the status quo and not change anything. And you should resist uh, that impulse, right? You even should, if you have to be a supervillain to do it. Even yeah. if you need to give up your life to do it, you should resist that impulse. Uh-huh. And that's a great message. It's, it's a yeah. message yeah. you need in today's day and age. For sure. It, I just think it's really weird uh, coming from you know a dude that <laughs> murdered 500 people in several acts of terrorism. I just think that's and... uh, kind of weird. You know, I, don't... I feel like if he had some help, like the thing with uh, M. Night <laughs> early on, right, is that he he was able to do so much. He had so much clout because he was like the wonder kid. He was the one the studios thought could like, you know, deliver next a hit. Spielberg. The I'm next Spielberg, yeah, the next, next Hitchcock. Spielberg. Yeah, we remember that cover and that that power kind of went to his head in a way. And I think led to those other movies. And I feel like I, I want him to come back. I want him to like, you know, start doing his own thing again. But at least in this case, like the self-financing is good and bad, right? Because he it's entirely his own vision. The bad is that it's entirely his own vision. And it's like, I don't, I, I wish he had some writer help. I wish he had just some friends to like help him conceptualize some of these ideas because Murder Puddle really bums me out. <laughs> just like, I, I think on every level, on every level, like I understand. Like the concept budget, and execution, you, right? Like it's yeah, just, yeah. Nothing about you, you, you done dirty a character that we've wanted to see, you know, thrive for so long. I don't even mind that he killed him off. That's how yeah, it, he does it. That needs to be that an, you need of, to honor that character with that death. And I yeah. don't know that he did that. Right. So, a, yeah. a little something he was like, dude, David Dunn was bending steel bars while, uh, was, was somebody was in danger while like the, the horde was going to attack somebody. Like he's taking his sweet time when he should have been like uh, running over there to be the superhero. We want him to be, there, there's a lot, but at the let same, me, let me ask there, you guys this question. Yeah, uh, do you think this movie would be better or worse if he had a hundred million dollars to make it? Mm. It's tough to say I, because I think that what we're seeing is um, with the visit with um, uh, Split and with Glass. Like, if you graph those movies on on a chart, <laughs> I think they've gotten worse with each one, and he, the budget has gotten bigger with each one. Sure. And I, I feel like with the visit, I was like, oh my, like this guy actually still has got it. Like he still knows how to make a, t- a tense movie. And then as these movies have gone on, like I, I am starting to question his, his taste again, right? Like some I of the, disagree, ex- man. some I of disagree. the execution in this movie is laughable, right? In my opinion, like it's, 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 it's not good. Like that final sequence at the train station, it just is like, I understand mm-hmm. it's probably limited by budget and stuff, but it just is like, He's. It just. I couldn't stop thinking. Like this is a like. I, I, you want bad. this scene to be like yeah. really grand and like overwhelming with like the scope of it, and it's like thirty people in a tiny train station in a place <laughs> that no one cares about. You know, like I do just, agree. I do agree that the end lands with less impact than I wanted it to, and I, I, I you know, I kind of gave my what I wished had happened with this and like superheroes, but I, regardless of of that, it. It doesn't. I. I don't want to come off seeming like I thought it was a home run at the end because it, it certainly was not. It was. Yeah. Not. I'm just saying. I, stuff, I just, moments like that make me feel like is the, mm-hmm. you know maybe he's losing it. You know maybe he's got high on his own supply a little bit again. Um, yeah. Because yeah, I mean when when he's great, he's amazing, and when he's bad, it's really bad. And sometimes both of those things are in the same film, which I mm-hmm. think is the case here. Um, I think his downfall was that nobody could tell him no. 
after a while, right? At the studios, like he he was just not listening to anybody. I just wish uh, I wish he had a buddy. Wish he, wish he had somebody just to like talk through some of these story ideas or something. Like there are things I really like about this movie. I I like that you know uh, David Dunn's son comes back and is like the helper. He's like the oracle kind of helping him scout out every situation. Oh, totally. He's or- Oracle for Batman. Yeah. He's totally. totally Oracle. Like, but also what they're doing so low level, but at the same time they own a security agency. So it's, it's like great. they're, they're distributing all these cameras around the city. So they're doing the weird privacy invasion uh, that we saw in dark Knight, except yeah. like without it's- the moral, <laughs> without thinking too much about the Oracle quandaries there. It's um, such a bummer that we didn't get like a trilogy <laughs> of movies over the last 18 years of that that duo like solving crimes doing stuff i mean that would be rad it would have been fun i think maybe it would have felt like a lot of these types of superhero things yeah because we have seen that in batman but little things uh we we see the the progression of m knight's own character from unbreakable who was also (laughs) in a split that has no business being in the movie whatsoever (laughs) it is literally only there for people to be like what happened to that M Night character? <laughs> listen, listen. It was about the goodness, right? He found uh, he found the power of positive thinking, right? Right. Yeah, but I loved it. That's I loved hilarious. it in there. But it is it is so shoehorned in that movie. It's ridiculous. <laughs> That's exactly what I'm talking about, though. That, yeah. that he thought that that was a good idea. You know, I think speaks yeah. about. But yeah, it, it is true that he plays the same character in Unbreakable and uh, Split, and now this movie. And and actually, it, arguably, you has could start a, that guy's life. That guy's life yeah. was not in a good place. Arguably, <laughs> has a bigger arc than David Dunn in this film. Arguably, has a bigger it's arc. a very satisfying arc because he ends in a place where we feel good. He doesn't end in a puddle. That's right. Um, he doesn't die things, in a puddle. Yeah. One of the things I absolutely adore about this movie is that it's easy to write a character who's a superhuman mastermind and just go, uh, and then he figures out how to do it. But this movie actually leads you down the path of them going, well, he's just, he's just super smart. So he gets out and he does it, but, and then places all of the things that he's doing to actually accomplish it in the movie, in real time, you watch him do it and you don't, aren't able to put it together until later when you see him pull off the plan. It's all placed there. Every step that he has to do in order to accomplish what he's going to accomplish is all laid out for you. But it seems like he's just saying, well, he's super smart, so he can break out at yeah. night and he can do whatever he wants. But, but he's but not. That felt too surprising, right? Like, I think we've established that, yes, he is super smart. We've seen him do some crazy, ingenious things in Unbreakable. So I was waiting for that moment. It didn't really come as a surprise to me. Uh, what I did find surprising, though, is that, you know, for I think the first hour of this movie, Sam Jackson just doesn't say anything. He's just <laughs> yeah, in a movie out named in a after chair. his character. And yeah. that's really interesting to to do that because I've been waiting so long to see what Elijah does, you know, after being caught. But, and we have to wait an hour into this movie to even hear him say a word. But it's cool that you see the pieces required for him to pull everything off. You see him go and you he hacks the, the computer. You see him uh, get out and look at the notes so he knows what the machine is that's going to give him the lobotomy or whatever. So, you know, like all of the things that he needs to do happen in real time. You just don't know the context for them until later. Right. And I love that. I love how, how that all plays out. Uh, people in the chat room are saying a few interesting things. I want to point them out. Like some people have pointed out that the world that he created here is is really in- interesting mm-hmm. because it's like a heightened reality. Like what's, one of the great things about Unbreakable is like it's felt so believable, right? Like 
It yeah. felt like yeah. this guy, he has powers, but they're not like, uh, he's not like shooting beams out of his eyes. You know, it's just like, yeah. he's just a he's little, a little bit stronger. stronger. He's a little yeah. stronger than a normal person, right? And and uh, you could argue the same thing about Split as well. Like that guy is just a little bit, you know, more <laughs> intense than, than people. Um, and but that's what makes the, the linchpin around which this movie revolves so effective of like, Maybe you aren't superhuman. Maybe you're right? just exactly yeah. And I think that's a really interesting like you know uh, in many ways this movie is like the anti Marvel you know in, in that it's like a super small scale superhero film. And one of the interesting aspects of that is uh, that the universe isn't one where like the Guardians of Galaxy exist, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's uh, that's a unique world that we don't get a chance to see that much of. In the theater, so I, I do think mm-hmm. that's an accomplishment. Uh, Walter Chaw. Also, is, yep. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say Walter Chaw is actually in the chat room, and he asked a question about like, uh, do you think the film presents choices? Uh, like, one is you blow shit up like Joker or Glass. One is you do good like David Dunn and maybe die in a puddle. And one is you <laughs> cheer for the status quo. Um, the danger with blowing up the status quo is sometimes you get Trump. I mean, yeah, I, I, I think it is. Inter- I think it's interesting. Like the the movie does celebrate the blowing up of the status quo, right? Yeah. And yeah. Uh, with all of the uh, great and terrible things that may may happen with that. Um, and ultimately, per my own mixed feelings in the film, I don't know if that is the best choice. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I agree we shouldn't have secret societies <laughs> determining what people <laughs> believe in, but I don't know that we should also be um, uh, supporting the work of terrorists either. So, you know. Anyway. So it goes. Uh, do want to say shout out to James McAvoy though. Like his, he's awesome. He he's tremendous in this movie. He was great in Split, but also here I think uh, there are more scenes where it feels like he's jumping between personalities much faster, and he has to like change his mannerisms, his face, the way yeah. he talks, and everything like on, awesome. a, on a dime and within a single take. And that's it's just like seeing how well he can manage that. I think is pretty astounding. He's that's a special effect. Acting. He yeah. He's special. The special effect is acting. It's like, what if we wanted to do the Incredible Hulk, but we didn't have any effects budget? <laughs> right, right. Well, we just have this dude just Hulk the hell out. <laughs> you know, like we'll just pay a trainer for a couple yeah, months, get, get him just, Yeah, he just sells it. I mean, I think there is some, maybe some digital accentuation of certain things. I certainly hope so because there's a moment where his neck <laughs> does something that made yeah. me physically uncomfortable. Yeah, and I hope that was an effect because if he did that to himself, I. I shudder to think what he did to his body. I, I do think that something that does continue to bother me is I feel like M. Night Shyamalan has done – I'm going to make a statement. I don't even know if I believe it, but I think I believe it. Okay, so – and, you know, you, you guys, listeners at home, you guys on the podcast, like, take it in and kind of turn it over in your head and see what you think about it. But I think M. Night Shyamalan has done more to stigmatize mental illness than <laughs> any other director. I think that, like in all of his mo- or many of his movies, uh, the mentally ill are uh, treated as uh, you know dangerous or as comic relief in ways that uh, are upsetting. And I think you know we talked about this in our split episode. In most of his films, like you think of the Sixth Sense, or you think of that split, starts off with a with a murder. Yeah, with a murder by character. someone who's mentally ill. Yeah, yeah. and and uh, but Jeff, I think I think I think it was you who that said this during our split review where. If they had just called it something that wasn't di like wasn't an actual right. disorder, right. like right, I think yeah. that would have solved a lot of problems. But I yeah. think he kind of like plays fast and loose with these these labels and doesn't realize like the impact it may have. Um, and 
So uh, it kind of bothers me, and I'm still I still need to like sit and think about it um, a little bit more. But I'm left a little bit still unsettled by how he treats the mentally ill. I agree. Um, He plays fast and loose. I I think there are far more culturally impactful (laughs) works that don't treat the mentally ill very well. Like it's it's just been it's a recent thing to really think about the portrayals of mental illnesses. Um, So yeah. Yeah. maybe within the last decade or so. So certainly a fair point though. Yeah, yeah, definitely worth bringing up. All right, guys, any closing thoughts on glass? I think yeah. all of us at least admired what it was trying to do. Right. Like, I, yeah. I, I'm, I'm glad it's not outright terrible. Like I, I was prepared for my heart to be broken in a way that it was when I saw the last airbender. And that was a double knockout for me because that's a franchise I love. Uh, and the movie was terrible. Definitely one of the worst things I've ever seen. And then the next day I had to go and interview him in person. I remember that. And and that was rough. That was really. And then he was such a nice guy. He was so nice. He played my iPhone four. It was super cool because he was like, look how far we've come in technology. (laughs) Um, That was so cool. And then the movie was so bad. So it's like, yeah, I I want him to succeed. But man, I'm just glad this movie is an outright failure. At least I'm so curious what's next for him. You know, like, does he. Does he stick with the sort of uh, small budget horror-y feeling stuff or is he, you know, does he have ambitions to do, you know, kind of some of the things that he didn't, I think, do to the full extent of what he may want to have wanted to do? This movie, I think, is going to get him a blank check if if, uh, the current box office performance is any indication. I mean, I think like after The Sixth Sense. This guy could do whatever he wanted, and then he couldn't do whatever he wanted for a while. But maybe after this, like, I mean, this movie looks like it's heading towards at least uh, split-level performance, which is $300 million worldwide. It's right? pretty good. And I think, you know, after this, he's going to have more options. I don't know what he's going to do with those options, but um, he's going to have more options. And uh, I agree with you, Jeff. I'm, I'm very curious to see what he does next. Maybe he's going to double down and make another small movie and, and have complete creative control. Uh, yeah. But I... I don't know. It feels like the higher the budget gets, sometimes the worse the film. So the higher the budget gets, the worse that a clear tastes. That's right. <laughs> that a clear taste. Yeah. I, I, I'm definitely excited, though. I, I you know, I, he makes interesting stuff and there's nobody else quite like him. And I I want him to be making movies. So I hope they're good. All right. That's our review of Glass. Uh, it's fun. Fun talking to you guys about this. Uh, yeah. You can find fun. more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmCast.com. Uh, email us. Let us know what you thought of the film at slashfilmcast at gmail.com. Stay tuned to hear what we'll be discussing next week. In the meantime, you can find uh, our theme song at adamwarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. Uh, Jeff Kanata. Where can we find more of your work on the internet this week? You can always follow me on Twitter. I'm at Jeff Kanata, which is spelled with two N's and one T. I also do a video game podcast, which is called DLC. You can find that at 5x5.tv slash DLC or wherever you get podcasts. Devendra? Oh, I write about tech at Engadget.com. I'm also doing a tech Q&A podcast at nomoretech.net. That's no with a K. I'm going to try to refigure out the format of that soon, but new episodes should be popping up soon. And I'm on Twitter at Devendra. Uh, I'm making one YouTube video every two weeks in 2019. Yeah, You can find that at youtube.com slash Dave Chensky, uh, including my review of the two Fire Festival documentaries. Uh, so check that out. Subscribe if you want to get some cool videos this year. And uh, thanks to everyone for listening. Next week, we're going to be reviewing Joe Cornish's newest film, The Kid Who Would Be King. 
I can't uh, wait. Excited to check out Joe Cornish's new movie after Attack the Block. Really big fan of that movie. Um, so that's what's on deck next week on the Slice Filmcast. Cast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you Welcome to the Slash Filmcast After Dark, where we talk about a variety of random stuff. Today we're going to be discussing about the two Fire Festival documentaries. Uh, there is a documentary called Fire by Chris Smith on Netflix and Fire Fraud, directed by Jennifer First and Ju- Julia Willoughby Nason on Hulu. Fire Festival was supposed to be the new Coachella, the new Burning Man. Exclusivity with access to premier talent. It was going to be an experience bordering on impossible. What's the worst thing that could possibly happen? Nightmare in Paradise. There was no music. They were put into disaster relief tents. People started to have breakdowns. People started to have panic attacks. No idea what they were doing. It was also a health concern that there were people literally trapped on an island. It was a shit show. Just chaos and anarchy. It's a great time to be a con man in America. Whatever it takes, we are all in, and let's go make this happen. William McFarlane created Fire Festival with rapper Ja Rule. You're sitting there saying, like, I have no idea what this guy does, but I'm pretty certain that it's not legitimate. Billy understood what millennials as a generation want. What Fire Festival did prove is that power of influence is real. These guys figured out a way to optimize social media, almost weaponize it. Jeff, Kanata, and I have seen the whole thing. Devinder, you said you've watched most of both, so did you just, like... Watch part of one, and then you're like, I, I think I've gotten enough yeah. out of this, and then peace out. Just, just to see what was up. Uh, like, honestly, this is a story I've heard about you know, quite a bit. This was a huge thing. But I, I did not have the social media schadenfreude that so many people did following this whole disaster. I just didn't want people to die because of a dumb music festival. Uh, so I, I didn't have like a huge attachment to the story. Uh, I saw, I think, about 50 minutes. I saw about half of the Hulu one and most of the Netflix one. So, Jeff Kanata, I think you you had the probably the most positive reaction to these things, right? So, what did you think of these documentaries? I think they're essential viewing for all Americans. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, not really. Um, <laughs> if you want to feel worse about the state of society right now, yeah. yes. It's, yes. It's, it's, At least the Hulu one. Two movies about terrible people that make you feel terrible about the state of the world. Um, my question to you guys is, which... Which order did you watch them in? Because I, I went Hulu, then Netflix. Yeah, Hulu, then Netflix, for sure. Yeah. Okay. sure. I think that's yeah. interesting. Because Hulu, um, they dropped the date early, and I think by surprise, too, right? To like, uh, Which is like just, a pretty badass move, I have to say. It's pretty bold. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> just like, yeah. you know, Netflix has been advertising this fire documentary, and then just, bloop, oh, hey, by the way, you can watch ours today. You know, that's pretty... <laughs> and that's also, pretty... the guy who did it is being interviewed here, and he's, he's not <laughs> Yeah. What I love about this whole situation is that we have this cool ability to look at what if two different people made the same documentary. Yes. And that is a remarkable case study in how a lot of the same footage can – or the same topic can be told in vastly different ways. Agreed. And watching these made me go, man, some of my favorite documentaries of all time, you really 
recognize the artistry that's on display. You recognize the craft of building a story out of real life events. And, and if a different filmmaker had handled that, it would be a completely different movie. And that's what you get with these. And there's a, there's this remarkable Venn diagram that emerges of points that have to be covered by both bits of video that have to be shown by both. But the Hulu doc is very much from the outside looking in and the Netflix doc is from the inside looking out. And the, the Hulu documentary is much more concerned with the influence influencers experience. Yeah. And why what, did this happen? It's, yeah. It's basically. like, how did, how did society make it so that this was possible? Basically. Yeah. Yes. And it's all like, wow, we all watched this together and we all were uh, perceiving what was happening and we all looked at it and what, what, how could something like this happen? Netflix is like, we were there. This was messed up. Let's tell you about it. Here are all the people that were like there from day one and here's what their experience was. And it even starts saying things that turn out to be completely untrue because it's telling it from the perspective of people who believed yeah. those untruths at the beginning of the process. And it's also partially produced right yes. by the by the group fuck jerry the, the production company, fuck, jerry. fuck jerry yeah the thing i'd never heard of before but which is apparently a massive uh social media and marketing engine okay a, sure a fine. nefarious and sleazy and really it just makes you it, the, yeah it, all of these things just make me hate everything it's how it's how genius that company is by the way because they can they can produce this thing right this weird social media sensation and then profit off of the failure of it yeah <laughs> Yeah, it's amazing. Very, very, well, it's put. Amazing. very well put. Yeah. Yes. So, so, so heads, you guys are heads, heads. We win, tails you lose. That's that's <laughs> how it works. You're astutely pointing out that both documentaries are in some way ethically compromised, right? Um, the Hulu documentary Fire Fraud paid Billy McFarland, the mastermind of the Fire Festival, to sit down for an interview. An interview, by the way, that I thought was extremely unrevealing. Um, you it's... you are confirming that he is a sociopath in that interview, but other than that, he has there's no self reflection going on. There's no like real insights that you have. I think that's pretty telling, though. His inability, his inability to even reflect on the insanity of the situation. I'm sure, like legally, he could. He was told not to reveal certain things to you, but that is telling to me. Like to me, I think like it was worth paying to get him involved here just to see that he is as vacuous as you'd expect. I, I don't think that's the case, Devendra, simply because. Uh, a counterexample exists, and is it is the other documentary <laughs> where you? you I, I, think I you, honestly prefer the Hulu one at this point. Ooh, okay, Jeff. Which one do you think is better? For the first half of the Netflix one, I was like, "Wow, the Hulu one's way better." But I think the Netflix one gets better as it goes on. I I, I don't think either of them works independently of the other. I think they're if you're gonna if you're gonna invest in watching them, you have to watch both and. The entire experience to me was informed by the juxtaposition of the these two documentaries about the same topic. I hmm. disagree. I think that uh, <laughs> I mean my recommendation, honestly, is that you watch neither of them just just because they're they're Who cares? you're, you're, Who in, cares? you're really? in some way enriching you know some of the people behind this by watching either the documentary. But if you have to watch one, it's the Netflix one in my opinion because that's the one that does the best job of conveying the moment-by-moment -moment horror, the existential dread of all the lead-up to the festival. In the but Hulu it documentary... Paints, it paints all of the people involved except <laughs> the guy as being completely unaware and completely... Uh, 
uh, innocent and, and just yeah. they just wanted to be such good people. All we wanted to do was do these good things, and and uh, this guy just bamboozled all of us, which is horseshit. That's true. Right. It's true horseshit. enough. One hundred percent agree, Jeff. Uh, but that said, I think it does a better job of conveying like uh, all all the stuff that went into the festival. Like in the Hulu documentary, it's like you know seven days to the festival, five days to the festival. Like the, all that happens in like three minutes, right? In the Netflix, it's it spends a lot of time on the whole buildup of like all the stuff that they tried to do and failed at doing. Uh, but who spends its time on a buildup telling you who this Billy fella fella is yeah. and his whole backstory and life. And I think parental that's a lot situation. more important. Yeah. And I guess it really depends on what you're looking for. Yeah, it's true. From the story, right? It's like true. I don't, Personally, I, I I don't want to. I don't really care about the insights of what you know what went down on the ground during the fire festival. Um, I think the cultural implications, the context of why this thing happened and what it meant overall for us as a society is more interesting to me. And that's what here's, the Hulu one does. Here's where I will, I will agree with you, David. The Netflix one is superior simply because of the dick sucking story. Oh God! <laughs> it's got the dick sucking story, oh. which is. Extraordinary. It, it is one of the most extraordinary interviews I've ever seen, <laughs> like ever in my whole life. Right? Yes. Is in is in that documentary. Right? Yes. Um, it also uh, it, it makes like the different documentaries make different stylistic choices. And let's just say I'm gonna go with the Netflix one for using the score from the Social Network and Gone Girl over <laughs> the Hulu one for using a text to speech machine to read <laughs> crucial court documents. Listen, I, I know which exciting. one I'm going to go with. I know which one I, I choose, like which one I'm going to put my money on, yeah. if you know what I'm saying. I also feel like that uh, that to me feels like more. Yeah, the Netflix one is more entertaining. Yes. It's better shot. Yep. It's better put together. But also like that's the one where the swimsuit models are front and center early on. Like it's really selling the sex appeal of this whole thing. And I think there is something it feels a tad disingenuous, you know, like it. it I, the well, I think they're both. I think they're polished. both, you know, morally bankrupt. You know, so I, I agree. in different ways, in different <laughs> ways, and I think we learn a lot from seeing, uh, you know, Billy McFarlane's actually seeing him talk about this stuff and have absolutely no, like, no ability to see what he did wrong here. And like, listen, guys, I um, as part of my job, I interview these guys. I've encountered so many Billy McFarlane's in my life. And yeah, I have to listen to the problem. pitch for their shitty tech companies and then sit back and watch and think to myself, like, oh, this is a dumb idea. And then the next day <laughs> they get 10 or 20 million dollars from VCs who are like just eager to to like suck up some of this young uh, millennial insight. It is it is a gross, terrible world we're living in. And this yes. is mainly startup culture, I'm thinking. So I think for me for really just bringing that idea out to the masses, something that HBO Silicon Valley also does pretty well. Um, but bringing that idea out there, like this is the problem. It's not just the fire festival, but it's this world where we're throwing money at these idiots who talk like they know something, but don't actually know anything, but people are still fine sending them millions of dollars, even yeah. though you can see from the outside that what they're doing is purely criminal a hundred percent Devendra so well said agreed I completely agree one and point. here's where I give one the point. Hulu one credit it actually makes that connection the Netflix one yeah. is blithely unaware of the horrors it's discussing but Hulu is le at least is like um you know making the connection to um oh what's her name uh, uh black turtleneck girl um, Theranos. Yeah, yeah. Theranos yeah yeah Theranos and 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 you know it kind of, it kind of makes a broader point of how this is just 
just lie as long as you can for as to as many people as you can to make as much money as you can. Just get what you want. It's it, it's horrifying and disgusting, and it, but at least it conveys that message. That's why I disagree with you, Dave, on the like don't watch either of these. Yeah, maybe you're in some way helping these people make some money off of this, but also I hope that you can't come away from either of these documentaries feeling like this is not anything other than just disgusting on every level. Yeah. Devendra uh, agreed with everything you guys just said. And Devendra, you're talking about Billy McFarlane in that interview in the Hulu version, but I would argue that far more revealing than anything of the footage they got of Billy McFarlane in the Hulu interview is the footage of him pulling scams while he's out on bail, which is sure, in the sure, Netflix sure. documentary. Yeah, uh, and that, which is that unbelievable. Is incredibly damning. And also, uh, it, it really is revealing about the person. It's, it's like this guy is, is – it's pathological. It's, it's almost, feels he like a, almost feels like yeah. a compulsion because he, he doesn't have to do it at that point. And apparently, he's like living high on the hog at that point too. Yeah. Right? He's living in this like extremely – sweet penthouse situation like we're he's got like money stored away somewhere i think the the biggest disappointment of both of these documentaries and, and not, not with the filmmaking i mean just like the biggest disappointment takeaway for me is that we have not seen the last of billy mcfarland i guarantee you this guy sure. is coming sure. back in like five years and you're gonna read about him in some freaking stupid ass uh, story about how oh the guy who went to jail the fire festival guy he's come back he's got a new yeah. crazy idea um, and then, and then the media the, the media will like some uh, some site some even a newspaper because for his other stuff what was it Magnesis the yeah. stupid like elite credit card thing like that was I saw that being reported here in New York by like you know reputable organizations. Uh, and every it's 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 just a credit card. It's just like an elite credit card with a stupid club that doesn't even seem that exciting. Um, I will but, say the uh, the yeah. Hulu documentary does a much better job of uh, portraying Magnesis as a huge scam. Which uh, it, you know I think the Netflix one touches on it too, but I think the full extent of it is not made clear except in the Hulu doc. Yeah, um, the Hulu one shows that it shows him scamming before, and yes. the Netflix one shows him scamming after. That's right. So, yeah, that's right. Yeah. You get the whole picture. The whole picture, both, yeah. I guess. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, that's there what. I, that's why my point is that they yeah. can't stand alone because the Netflix one really comes at it like, boy, we all believed in this idea. We thought it was awesome. We wanted to just make something great, <laughs> and I do not believe that. I, I the Hulu <laughs> one makes the point that it was a scam from the word go. Yeah, I think what's yeah. upsetting to me about the Netflix one. I, I, I mean, so you know, the Hulu one paid Billy McFarlane, but the the Netflix one. You have producers of the film yep. sitting for interviews, and you do not identify them as producers of the film. I, that is just it's unacceptable, disgusting. in my opinion. Yeah, right. Like it's you, gross. you, like you don't need to. It's fine. Like let the reader make their own judgments, but like you, you they have not been identified. Now, to be fair, I don't know to what extent they're like producers. A big word, right? Like right, who knows right. what that means? I know for a fact that they licensed footage that Jerry Media shot, but mm -hmm. still, they they are. It's a co-production. Uh, even. Um, Gabrielle Bluestone is is I think Vice right is a is a producer on the movie. Um, you got to just indicate that somewhere in the movie. Um, so <laughs> it's just it's just not like both of them left me feeling kind of dirty. Basically, yeah. is what I'm saying. My favorite scene I think is in the Netflix one when you see the 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 actual app company, um, the sort of inside workings of the app company where they say, 
hey, we're not firing any of you. Yeah. We're just not going to pay you anymore. And I've literally had that conversation with a, with a startup. <laughs> I've oh, literally yeah. had that Oh, yeah. Like, We'd love you to keep working. We're just not going to pay you anymore. My, and I've been like, that, is that okay with you? My favorite moment from, from that whole sequence is uh, Ja Rule. Is, is saying like, hey, like nobody got hurt. Okay, we didn't, you know, and then someone disputes him. They're like, well, we did lie to people. And he's like, we didn't lie. No, we no, just did say, some false was, advertising. No, he goes, he goes, that's fraud. And he goes, that's not fraud. I'd call that uh, false, false advertising. Yes. <laughs> like, that's fraud, pal. That's the the only way to top off this whole thing is for Dave Chappelle to interview Ja Rule. And like, let's, let's, let's bring this full circle. Okay. I will say watching Ja respond to the documentaries has been incredible. Uh, he is just he is amazing. Get, he's getting that, that shovel guy... and digging it deeper, you know? Yeah, well, I don't great. understand how he has managed to get away with this not – like the, the no, Netflix one in particular shows him in every creative meeting at every level. <laughs> yeah. You know? Like it's, it's extraordinary. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Um, we should mention, by the way, that one of the most heartbreaking stories in the Netflix documentary is about how one of the uh, Bahamian – is it Bahamanian or Bahamians? I'm not sure exactly which what the term is. But one of the people involved with setting up the Fire Festival uh, was defrauded out of hundreds of thousands of dollars. And has since set up a GoFundMe, which has uh, now, I think, uh, as of this recording, has over $100,000. Uh, yeah. The one good thing to come out of this entire catastrophe. Uh, so we'll link yeah. to that in the show notes if you want to donate. But, uh, yeah, I did think that was uh, one – like maybe maybe net-net, sure, some terrible people were enriched. But also this woman got her money back. So uh, the universe That's is kind okay. of even now. Right. Let's hope. I don't know how these GoFundMe's actually. There's any accountability? It seems they all seem sketchy to me. But well, yes. I, I, it's also good that we get to laugh at this. I guess one more time. But I think ultimately, for me, this is part of the whole reckoning of the tech world. In a way, we're seeing too. Like it's a music festival that's tangentially related to tech because, right? The whole point was to sell the stupid, the really stupid idea <laughs> of an app, a Tinder for booking. Yeah. Like. Coldplay Booking is gonna is gonna Booking come celebrity. to your is gonna come to your, your birthday party. Yeah, um, it, it, sure. It's sure. totally undersold in the. You're absolutely right, Devendra. That point is totally undersold in both documentaries. That the, both of the documentaries come at it from this perspective, like they wanted to throw this festival. The, the festival was not the important part. No <laughs> one gave a crap about the festival. It was all a sham to launch an app, and that. I want a third documentary to be made that really focuses on exactly what you're talking about, Devendra, which is Silicon Valley garbage culture of how these app companies that can swindle VCs out of money, that can swindle users out of money, that are predatory and gross. And there's so many of them and it's so prevalent. And yes, this was flashy because it had bikinis and big music stars and a festival that failed but it's happening every single day on the app level and that's really what this story is about it's well, about that, but it's also about like social media marketing too yeah. like when they were talking about the brilliance of using a solid orange <laughs> image to really to really sell the impact of this i wanted to get on a spaceship and leave this goddamn planet <laughs> well yes. okay let me yeah. just let me just say uh i i gotta say guys as as absolutely horrible as these people were at uh, at actually putting together a coherent event, 
Uh, I do think some of the social media marketing was pretty good. I'm just going to, as yeah, as somebody you would say that, that, Dave, you're part of the problem. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's, it's just terrible. That's yeah, right. it's That's effective. Right. Here's the thing. It's effective. I understand it's effective. I don't have to like the fact that this is the culture. Yeah, no, that that's, fair. that's fair enough. That's fair enough. That's uh, like, but also, Jeff, the thing Jeff, I hate about it, the thing I hate about it is that it's effective. Yeah. The thing, uh, the thing that's hilarious about the fact that this whole festival was to promote an app is how much of a self-inflicted wound uh, this entire thing was. Because you could have just had a really big party in New York, you know, to, to, to do this, right? You could have just had a big, like, spent, you know, $50,000 on this party in New York to promote this app, and you would have gotten maybe not the same effect, but at least it would have been uh, feasible. It would have been a possible thing to do. Uh, and instead, they, they really overreached and... Uh, it was disastrous yeah. for everyone. You don't have to build a Trump Tower in Moscow either, but people <laughs> fucking do. They they overreach and they get themselves screwed because they're stupid, greedy assholes. Yeah, it's it's the overreach is to the ex- like it becomes su- such an extent that it becomes criminal, right? That's basically what's happened. Is is like right. they, they reach so far culture. that it is it becomes a criminal act, and that's what I think the true story of this is. So, uh, any closing thoughts? Any other favorite moments? from the doc that you want to share before we uh, wrap up here? I mean, the, there are so many, there are so many. I think of the Hulu doc when you, when they were talking about his, uh, uh, the guy's mentor, the, the like CEO of, uh, the oil shale company or something. Yeah. Yeah. And then eventually, and then pretty quickly he's like, Oh, he died under mysterious yeah. circumstances. What yeah, happened he committed there? Suicide, straight up committed suicide. Yeah. Okay. Insurance fraud. Yeah. That's pretty fitting. For this whole story, I, guess. I also loved the. Uh, there's nothing that encapsulates it all more than their the Ja Rule and Billy's toast, hmm. where they want to, you know, oh, let's man. let's party like rock stars, drink like whatever yeah. movie stars, and fuck like porn stars. Like yeah. that's to me, it, it just as somebody who has two small children now, <laughs> not to pull that card again, but <laughs> it, it really. I was like, I, I literally turned to my wife and I was like, how do we raise our kids to not be shallow, dumb fucks? Like, how? <laughs> Listen, that's a question every parent has asked themselves. Because time everything, everything in our culture is bent to creating shallow, dumb fucks. <laughs> like, everything in our culture is is pushing you down that avenue. It's it's definitely I, I think the broader point too like not only That's the Captain tech culture, Batman. but uh, influencer culture. We haven't really brought that up much, uh, but I think the that idea of the empty social media influencer who really exists just to show off products and to like really just to like show off their lives and like there there are people who do this for a living and I'm sure it's a lot of work and I'm sure like they're really dedicated to it. But I think on a broader level. The, the ability for like these so-called influencers to sell something like this is terrifying. And the these are the that people calls them brave. For, yeah. God. Calls them brave for posting. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah. That's the end of the world right there. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, I think we can wrap this up guys. <laughs> think of the children. That's our review of fire for Netflix and fire fraud for uh, Hulu. Jeff, did you appreciate the the pun in fire fraud? I thought it was kind of weak. I think it's supposed to be wire fraud. Oh, really? Yeah. I did not even get it. Kind of rough. As a master, as a resident master of wordplay. I thought it was just banal alliteration. Mm. Yeah. Well, 
There you go. Kind of, kind of a failure. Okay. Uh, but uh, anyway, you can check them out on Hulu and Netflix, and uh, you can check us out at slash filmcast.com. We'll see you next week.